I'm David Mullen ASC, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. All right, Ilya, how's it going? It is going. How's it going with you? I uh, did not just conduct a super long interview and I'm not dying for sleep right now. (laughs) Okay, well then, if neither of those things are true, then we should uh, get right to the show. Let's get right to the show. But before we get to the show, why don't you introduce our George Foyt close focus? George Foyt's close focus this week is going to be all about real indie filmmaking. And by real indie filmmaking, I'm talking about the people who really don't have money and they're Robert Rodriguez, El Mariachiing, this sort of willing a movie into existence. And there's been a, a bunch of examples of this over the years. And every once in a while, including one, Robert Rodriguez and El Mariachi aforementioned. Exactly. And and several others, including a movie you worked on, a little one called Blair Witch Project. But, you know, Indeed. there are some movies out there where the movie captures the imagination. It becomes a runaway hit. And all of the sort of. Uh, Technical hurdles uh, seem to fall away for audiences. It's like, you know, it's it's the story. It is not the technology that went oh, into it. Oh, but I disagree. I think but, that with a lot of these movies, the technical hurdles they overcame becomes part of the marketing campaign for the movie. I couldn't hear about El Mariachi when it came out without hearing that it was made for $7,000 by a guy who'd undergone medical testing to raise that $7,000. Just as you couldn't hear about Tangerine without hearing it was shot on a phone iPhone 5, I want to say. I don't know, but it was a phone. It, it was whatever was the current iPhone. And then it was phone. Filmic Pro or whatever it was, was the app. And then they sure. used the Moondog Labs uh, lens attachment. And there was a period of time when the world went crazy for this uh, very, very cheap, relatively mediocre quality anamorphic attachment for, for a cell phone. And I don't know how many other movies were made like this that 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 copied and followed it, but Tangerine was the one that, that broke through. Well, was the- okay. With everything like that, uh, whenever somebody like breaks the rules and succeeds wildly, like in the case of Tangerine, which is an excellent film that won an award at Sundance and was shot on an iPhone, the least interesting thing about it is the camera that they shot it on. True. And the reason that it, the reason it's noteworthy that they shot it on the iPhone is that they shot it like on the streets of Hollywood with available light or minimal lighting and no permits. And for all I know, I'm in the background of one of the shots. Like you would have no idea if you'd been there that they were making a movie. And that was what was interesting about it. And to me, this is how it goes back to, in my opinion, all the way back to, are you ready? Strapped in. This is real film school. I'm about to get here. Yep. Italian neorealism. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Italian neorealism, uh, De Sica, Bicycle Thief, this sort of stuff that was like, this was real. This was uh, unfettered. There was a combination of actors and non-actors to make a story. And m- most importantly, it was post-World War II. And I believe that a lot of those filmmakers were kind of congregating around Cinecittà, the studio in Italy. And Cinecittà was renowned for making what they called white telephone movies, where you have a butler holding a white telephone in a lobby delivering a bunch of exposition. (laughs) And then these young upstart filmmakers decided to grab these, at the time, very inexpensive uh, 16 millimeter cameras. Revolutionary cameras, very small, lightweight cameras, comparatively. Go out into the streets and they'd make Umberto D and they'd make The Bicycle Thief, on and on and on. 
and it 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 uh, predates the French New Wave, which kind of did a similar thing in the 1960s. Uh, I would even say that John Cassavetes does something like that exactly too when he uh, gets his hand on 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 lightweight, you know, exactly. Yeah. So I feel like what has happened with people making movies on cell phones or, you know, on using whatever the latest technology is for the longest time. This is a slight digression. I wanted to figure out a way to make a web series that was all shot on uh, a car's backup camera. Yeah, there was a parody music video that someone made. You can Google it. Yeah, it's it's funny for about 30 seconds. Once I saw that, I was like done. Yeah, but um, (laughs) I and and I have I I still sometimes wonder, could I make a movie on my ring camera, my doorbell camera? Mm, But not um, a good one. Not, not, not. <laughs> you can uh, make one. That's true. Who will watch it? I don't, I don't. <laughs> it would have to be very compelling to all take well, place right around one door. Did you see searching? I mean, it's like there are movies now being made on webcams. Like they, the whole thing takes place in front of a computer. Yeah. I, I, I did not see searching, but I, I know about it and there's tons of, I mean, here's the thing. Ultimately for not very much investment, you could make a feature length film. Now, is that feature length film going to be as good as Tangerine? Maybe. Is it going to be as well received as Tangerine? Probably not, unless the story and the acting is off the charts awesome, which is what really is what propelled Tangerine was good writing and good acting. Because, you know, it doesn't have a professional look, but at the same time, it's using the grittiness of its naturalism to for great effect in the exact way that, that the Italian neorealists used. Now, what what I would say, and uh, the, the Dogma 95 movement in Denmark in the 90s, obviously. <laughs> in, in 95. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I think that a lot of people for a while in America, filmmakers would say, like, I'm going to shoot this Dogma style, which was code for I'm going to use a shitty camera and I'm not going to use any lights. And I don't have any money. <laughs> yes. Now, if you were to go to the Dogma filmmakers, you know, like uh, Lars von Trier, Thomas Vinterberg, those people who were making those films, I think that you would find that they they were working in a different system than ours and they were able to get state money to make some of their movies and like especially in the case of Lars von Trier his movies looked very 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 produced and they came up with a way to basically take away all their toys as filmmakers to see what kind of stories they would tell if they didn't have all those toys and for my money Thomas Vinterberg's The Celebration was the best of the bunch. Full disclosure, I have not seen all of the official Dogma 95 movies, but then people like, you know, Harmony Corinne and stuff co-opted the look, co-opted, borrowed, implemented the look and created their own movies here. Yeah. And and know, I got to say that same look was co-opted by Mumblecore and so many others too. It's like... Certainly. Yeah. And uh, nothing wrong with it. If you've got a story that works great, I think that What's always important is to take away the lesson behind the lesson. So the lesson isn't go make a movie on your iPhone unless you have a movie that works on your iPhone. You know, Steven Soderbergh shot Unsane on an iPhone uh, and released it in theaters. There's no one who's going to say, I'm not going to watch a movie if it was shot on an iPhone because most people probably won't even know. But why are you going to do it? I don't know why. I mean, the reason why is you already have it. it. You know, like if you don't have resources, this might be the best thing you have. And I suppose that's that's a perfectly valid reason. But generally, I'm thinking that anyone who's going to make a movie, their default should not be the phone in their pocket. I don't think it should necessarily be the default. But I also would say don't let not having a camera be the reason you didn't make a film. That's true. And if you could invest in Filmic Pro and some add on anamorphic lenses or whatever for your iPhone, if that makes it look any better or, you know, if you have the new iPhone Pro and the lenses on, I, I, I haven't I have yet to mess around with one of those. But like, let's say the lenses are good enough on that to tell the story that you wanted to tell. I don't think that there's any reason not to do it other than then that's the wrong visual language for your story. 
Sure. I'm going to guess say right now that I'm going to guess that uh, Lord of the Rings, probably not the appropriate choice for the iPhone. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there was a movie a few years ago called Hardcore Henry. That oh, yeah. Seemingly GoPro. only. Yeah. That movie only exists because it could be made on a GoPro. The GoPro enabled that movie to exist. Yeah. And uh, there really wasn't too many other cameras the size and uh, let's just say uh, robustness of the of the GoPro because they put that through so much stuff. And but but a, I also think like, let's say you pick up as I have from you and we've talked about it on here already, the DJI Osmo uh, pocket camera. Sure. You know, like picking it up and messing around with it and, you know, I'm getting a little bit better about how to use it and how to shoot on it. It's like I can see the possibilities for what kind of a film you could make with a camera like that. I've never been somebody who's good at saying like, hey, I have, you know, this colostomy camera. Uh, I'm going to go make a movie on it. Here's an idea for it. Or, you know, building the whole idea around the limitation. That's not necessarily my go to. But there are people who are great at that. And look, it's not the sort of workarounds you have to do now are not like the Robert Rodriguez uh, editing between two VCRs that he had to do. Like the, the certain level of things that you had to overcome. Even if you're not working with a great camera these days, it's still probably going to be able to record internally. It's still probably going to be able to go onto a memory card that can go into a computer so you can edit it and you can work yeah. with it. So, Well, El Mariachi famously cost $7,000 to make. And I think it's fair to say that if Robert Rodriguez were making that movie today for the first time, and he decided to make it on his phone, he could make that movie ostensibly for nothing. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I would say that... Um, and the same goes for Darren Aronofsky and Pi, where uh, Filmmaker Magazine, I still have this film issue of Filmmaker Magazine. From you the, are a hoarder. From, you, I am. You save old filmmaking magazines. I, which I is, love old filmmaking magazines. Have I, I given you all my old filmmaking magazines? No, please I, don't. Please okay. don't. Please don't. <laughs> Um, but I have an issue of Filmmaker Magazine where they broke down the budget of Pi, mm. which is one of my favorite indie films like ever. And it was $60,000. And most of the money uh, clearly goes to film stock, camera rental, processing that film stock, transferring that film stock and avid rental. Yes. So not, if you're making non-creative pi- yeah. uh, expenses, not, exactly. not money going on a screen. The things that you would not spend any money on today. I mean, like if you're going to spend you might be spending some money like if you're using the Adobe Creative Cloud to edit. So you're spending $50 a month on your editing as compared to the probably 2500 a week that you would spend on an Avid in 1998. So really what we're talking about is if you are making a movie right now and you need to get Adobe Creative Cloud and it takes you three months to edit your movie, you're 150 bucks in the hole. Yes. Or so, you use DaVinci Resolve and use the free version and, you know, Bob's your uncle. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, really what we're almost doing right now is having a call to action. Like for all those people out there who say, I cannot afford to do this. We're saying, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Not, not only can you afford to do it, but I'm not going to talk about the interview that we just conducted. But the, the person that we just talked to was talking about, like, it doesn't matter what you shoot on. You can find the way to make it look cinematic. I'm going to say, though, that, that you probably do have to pay some people. I mean, not always. I mean, if you can only get the people that you can get who are free or whatever it is who are willing to do it. But yeah, I mean, look, I'm not I'm not here to advocate for like exploiting people and not paying people to do a job. But I am saying that if if you are a beginning filmmaker, I don't think that there's anything wrong with making these choices, the choices that will get your film in the can. That's true. And if you are skilled in your craft and you can make it happen with these tools, Lord knows what you can do with even better ones. And also the way you get skilled at any craft is practice. Practice. And uh, practice. And this is a conversation that I've had with, with like film purists, people who are like, you know, you got to shoot on film. And I feel like 
what digital enables you to do and on a different level what this kind of filmmaking enables you to do is make lots of mistakes and to not feel that bad when you don't use the footage you shot because if like yeah your investment is not so great that you can't just stick it you know in the in the recycle bin when i was when i was shooting my thesis film in college Every time that camera was rolling, I just felt money draining out of my personal bank account because that was how UCF oh, it's, worked. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. You, you feel it. Everyone, I'd say, probably before 2000 who was yeah. uh, in film school, the sound of the camera turning over is the sound of money flying out exactly. of your, every well, your wallet. It's yes. like for 10 minutes of raw footage, that's 120 bucks plus processing, which was probably like, I think, another 30 plus transfer, which at the time was 250 an hour. No, really, the camera should have just been making cash register noises the whole time. Cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. Yeah. And and I remember one time, again, on my thesis film, uh, this poor camera assistant who's a student, he's there to learn how to do this. He loads the mag, he puts it on. This is an Airy um, SR2 with a coaxial mag. Oh, yeah. Puts it on the camera, clicks it in. And takes his hand off of it, and one of the door the door was <laughs> oh, slightly no. ajar, and it went, Nyeh! and he slammed it shut immediately. And the DP looked and was like, she said, "I'm sorry, we can't shoot that film." And she was right. It's ruined. And, and I was like, ah, there goes you know, like there that, go, that the, was hundreds of dollars. There gone. goes two days of me waiting tables right there, just like <laughs> right out the door, just that in that one little tiny moment. And uh, you know, I, I I prefer the world where I don't have to worry worry about things like that as much. <laughs> yes, or worry about having to wait tables now for days. That, that's end. true. I haven't waited a table since 1996. I'm I'm just saying though, as the filmmaking crowd, I've seen certain memes of filmmaking over the years, and I think even there was a series of like Coke commercials for a while that was making fun of like how filmmakers see the world. And of course, it was always like there was someone looking at a picture of their mom and dad, and it said bank or like financing yeah. above it, and it said you know they didn't uh, meet my mom and dad. Yeah, exactly. And and that was wasn't true for most people, but um, at least not in my sort of like uh, yeah. you know working class state school that I went to. Yeah. So. <laughs> anyway, so Ben, I think that that you and I can agree here that the digital revolution, uh, if you want to call it that, or the phone resolu- revolution, or the mirrorless camera <laughs> revolution, or what, whatever revolution we're, we're on right now, has probably been a really really good thing for the people who are creative and resourceful, and really, uh, in some ways, it's the fulfillment of the widely credited Francis Ford Coppola statement about the girl in her garage who's going to win an Academy. I Award. believe he said a fat girl in Ohio. I think that you know I don't know what the the attribution is right now, but I thought that part of that was discredited. I don't know if it was Ohio, but I heard it was garage. I thought I it was garage. Sworn it and was in the, the documentary it might have been the Hearts pejorative of, of, of fat, but I don't remember if it was. I, I yeah. believe it was in Hearts of Darkness, and I'm pretty sure he said "fat girl in Ohio." Wow. Okay. Well, you know, uh, well, slightly uncouth. Uh, he's thin, not thin, <laughs> trim, masculine uh, <laughs> human god Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, I mean, this is we're we're heading towards that day. The Academy. I mean, I think, I think we're headed towards that day. But I also think that, like, I uh, again, I think that like the inspiration of a Robert Rodriguez or a movie like Tangerine is not to do what they did, but to look at the tools that you have around you and and kind of do the meta version of what they did. That's definitely uh, a reoccurring theme. I read the Rebel Without a Crew, the, the Robert Rodriguez book, and uh, he s- makes that case over and over again. I was using the things I had access to. I had access to this. This was going in the movie. I was able to figure out someone who had this. So I was able to use that. Yes. 
So, hey, Ben, I think, though, that uh, we should probably move on to our interview. We have a great interview this week. David Mullen, friggin' amazing, genius uh, cinematographer. I've honestly been, it's been a few weeks since we conducted this interview, and I think about it often, like some of the stuff that he told me about uh, his work with the Polish brothers and some of the stuff that they did. I actually just really enjoy looking at his Instagram, too, which is just ridiculous. He's doing all sorts of wonderful infrared stuff right now, and if you aren't looking at it, you absolutely should. And and it, it was also cool just work uh, talking to somebody like him who had worked with uh, my friend Dan Myrick from of, of Blair Witch Project fame. He shot a really amazing film for him called Solstice. Um, that that that's just amazing to look at, and uh, it was cool to talk to him a little bit about that, but mostly about the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yes, and, of course. And, uh, and now uh, ASC Award nominated uh, David Mullins. I saw the awards came out yet. The nominations came out yesterday, and he was nominated for Maisel. No, so. he's amazing. So congratulations, David, and uh, let's get on with the interview. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so I am here at Hot Rod Cameras in beautiful Burbank, California, with. M. David Mullen, ASC. Well, we're very excited to have you on here. Thank you so much for coming on out. Thank you. So we start the podcast with kind of a, a question that's designed to kind of break the ice and just kind of get us in the right headspace. So a long time ago, a DP who later corrected me and said that this was not what he meant, implied to me that he thought, and so this is where I'm taking it, the DPs, when they're reading a script, they either see the images, like they see the composition that they want to see, or they see the lighting that they want to create and find the composition inside of that. Which school would you say you're in or any other answer to that? Like what's the beginning point for you of turning a script into images? Well, I try not to uh, get bogged down too much uh, in trying to visualize the script the first time I read it because I don't want to slow down the narrative of it. So Mm -hmm. I read it fairly straight through and some scenes are more evocative than others or cause you to pause because they... They seem to demand some strong visual approach, while others you just sort of in the back of your mind, you know, think I'll have to address eventually how this might be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to think in color and light more readily than composition, let's say, uh, although it, again, it depends on what the narrative needs at that moment. But I just read it through and, and I sort of see it as a little movie playing in my head, mm-hmm. you know, so that might mean camera moves, color, just sort of initial impressions. I try not to dwell too much on them because I want to talk to the director and get their sense of it too. But it's it's just uh, in my head you can't help but start to uh, see it as a movie if it's if it's written like a, a cinematic uh, script. Well, and it's interesting that you say that you think in colors to a degree um, because when I think of your work, I think of the colors of it. And probably the first time I was aware that I was watching one of your films was Twin Falls, Idaho. Uh, it was the first I had seen other films that you'd shot before that, but that was the first one where I was like, "Who shot this? This this is amazing. This has like a great look." And I, when I think about it, my memory of it, a lot of it is the colors and the the textures, and and and, and there's like a sensualness to it. Is that something that uh, you sought out? Because like before that, a lot of your work, and I'm a giant horror fan, but like y- you had done a lot of genre kind of stuff, and and I feel like that was kind of a a moment that it turned. And we're gonna go back and and go through your career, but I'm just kind of curious about that. Well, I think even from the beginning, I, I tried to break a script down into color, some of it in terms of just what's natural or logical. I, I look for opportunities for colors and, mm-hmm. and contrasting colors. So if a scene goes into sunset, I, I think, is it is this scene interesting in a kind of golden hour look or is it interesting in a blue dusky look? What works story-wise? What works with the mood of the script? And then I start to, to sort of mark 
the times a day, basically. I always look in a script, when, when is the last day scene in a series, and when is the first night scene, and when do we start a new story day? Even though, script-wise, they all may be noon scenes, you know, they yeah. just might be noon and night, and noon and night, but if it's not clear what the time is in the scene, then I will say, well, maybe this last day scene, I should treat it as a late afternoon scene to have an opportunity to change the light and feel like we're transitioning. So that that's sort of a narrative, uh, logical story thing. But then I also try to find a artistic or you know a psychological reason for these color choices. What works emotionally for the scene, and because I've always felt that if you're going to go into color symbolism, for say, you have to appease a certain percentage of the viewing audience that are extremely pedantic and logical about everything. So <laughs> you may want to do some sort of green light as for some symbolic effect, but you have to establish a green neon sign or a green fluorescent tube or some source that's green so the audience doesn't just go, what, where's that coming from? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it matters less for me, let's say, but it, it, uh, it helps people not to be thrown out if they've sort of established where the light is coming from. So I tend to think like that. But even from the beginning, because my early influence was Victoria Storaro, and he, mm-hmm. he had a, he's great for film students to study because he has a very structured way of approaching things, the way he breaks down a script into a series of sort of a color journey for the character to go through. And they may be, you know, a journey that where the colors change or maybe where there's a dominant color throughout the whole story. There may, it may be a color associated with a character. Or it just depends. I, I often think of a script as... Either it's a journey from A to B, or it's the intercutting of the A world versus the B world. So it's either the story is about a juxtaposition of of worlds, or it's about a change from one state to another state. Horror films are a little like that. They they often start out in the naturalistic and end in the expressionistic. So you start out with a very almost boringly normal setting, and slowly things fall apart and become more and more surreal to the point where you can justify, you know, ridiculous lightning storms and moonlight and, and uh, crazy shadow patterns uh, because you've brought the audience up to the point where they can, they can (laughs) accept. In fact, they expect it as part of the genre. Uh, Never thought about it that way. um, But that's particular to the the horror genre. But I think in, in stories in general, you often see the way the right they're written, that either the writer starts out in a kind of normal everyday quality and then slowly things fall apart or twist or turn even for comedies so to speak or they create a world right from the start that you're sort of in the middle of and and they and you're in a kind of strong style from from the first scene and sometimes the style doesn't vary much throughout like when i did north fork uh the whole film is in shades of gray it's it's a very dusky feeling cold wintry story and it doesn't this doesn't give you much relief from that throughout. It's, it's very consistent tonally throughout the whole film. I'm, I'm always curious about this. Do you ha- have a system by which you uh, you catalog this stuff? Like when you're breaking a script down and you're and you're saying it's a journey from I'm making it up from mm-hmm. o- orange to purple. What, whatever your color uh, symbolism or whatever your color theory for a specific film is. Like, how do you lay that out and how do you keep that all in your head? Because movies, you know, it's easy for it to get out of out of hand if you're not if you're not right. methodical about it. Well, again, uh, hopefully the script has clues as to the colors that it wants to yeah. use. So you're not fighting either the story or what you end up getting is locations or, or other things. 
I've uh, like even the opening of Twin Falls, Idaho. It says right on the first page that it's it's late afternoon or sunset in this hotel, and uh, I had in my mind a kind of blue green underwatery strange surreal feeling for the opening scenes because it's about these Siamese twins in this dingy hotel room but I asked Michael Polish uh, do you see this as a golden late afternoon or a kind of cold dusky uh, evening feeling and he he said I I like the cold dusky thing so I took that and ran with it basically And, and I not only did the whole room in a deep kind of bluish dusk effect but when they go into the bathroom in those early scenes I put green shower curtains on the window so the light in the bathroom would be a deep cyan greenish so you'd go from blue and green exclusively in the first few scenes and then from there other colors come in uh, in terms of keeping track of it to one, some extent it's important to keep it simple because you have to start out with very strong simple graphic Ideas, because the process of making movie is the process of watering down all your ideas. <laughs> it's you so know. true. You say, I'm going to do this whole movie in blue. You can guarantee that you might get 70% of it in blue so, yeah. right off the bat because there's going to be something orange or something warm that comes into your frame, uh, brick walls, uh, whatever. So you know off the top that uh, it's very hard, unless you're Tim Burton and doing everything from scratch, to stylize uh, a f- typical movie or TV show to a very extreme effect. So you start out with a very strong idea and everyone says, oh, that's that sounds like it's too much. It's going to look weird. But I said, no, no. By the time we shoot it, it's all going to be muted and more uh, softened. The idea will be softened by just the reality of, of the scenes because it's still often has a naturalistic tendency to everything so you're not you're not forcing the style too aggressively on everything so like i said i keep it simple whether it's i'm going to do a lot of orange light or a lot of backlight or a lot of wide angle photography or whatever it is i i sometimes i when i'm trying to come up with ideas for a script i will think of it as a game of of opposites like is this a wide angle movie is this a telephoto movie is this a warm film is this is a cold film is it a lot of movement is a lot of cutting and it might be the whole movie or it might be just the scene i'm thinking about but every even just breaking down a scene with a director i'll start to say let's approach the scene with wide angle lenses let's say what does that suggest what does that create visually for us what is the problems with that approach? And may let's flip it on its head. Let's let's what if we did this all in long lenses, zoom lenses or whatever? And you start to hash out the pros and cons of these approaches. I'm not you know set on any one way of doing things. I'm just trying to s- sort of start the ball rolling by throwing out ideas. Some of them are just off the top of my head. You know, mm-hmm. that's one thing I like about pre-production is that you're not under the pressure of shooting yet. So you can be in an office or on location scouting and just say, what if we shot this whole scene from outside looking in through the window? Or what if we um, played this all as a point of view or, or something like that? And maybe it's not a good idea. You know, maybe <laughs> the director will sometimes tell me, uh, especially when I'm doing comedy, he'll say, that, well, the trouble is it's not funny. Or, you know, the joke is this, and then that joke will be diluted if we do this visual approach you're talking about. And I'll realize, okay, I've drifted a away from the point of the scene which is that we reach a moment where the audience has got to laugh at a certain thing that happens so we have to make sure we get to that moment correctly so well and we'll get to mrs Maisel a little bit later but i feel like mrs Maisel is one of those shows 
where it's like everything is on point and and if the cinematography didn't work the show wouldn't work uh it it's so driven by the way it's shot and the and the the way the camera work is and sometimes it it's one of those shows that sometimes lets the camera tell the story in ways that a lot of tv shows don't do before we get to that though i kind of want to go back to to the beginning for you uh were you a film school guy did you go to film school have you when, when did it occur to you first that you wanted to be doing what you're doing it's a very long process because i was a sort of film geek since i was a little kid and i had watched a lot of science fiction growing up a lot of star trek and godzilla movies and was building spaceship models and started doing little um Super 8 films, little science fiction films in Super 8. So I was making films since I was a teenager. And at some point in college, I was originally going to be a pre-med, but I decided I really wanted to go into filmmaking because that's what I'd been doing since high school. And I couldn't get into film school as an undergraduate. I transferred to UCLA, but I got ended up with an English lit degree there. But while mm-hmm. I was at UCLA, I had friends who got into the USC film school. So I shot a lot of their films for them because I owned a Super 8 camera and, and I already had a couple of years of experience shooting and lighting and cutting Super 8 film. And then after a few years after graduation, I saved up some money and I went to film school at CalArts. Oh, um, wow. I was like 26 uh, when I went to CalArts. But by the time I got there, I'd been shooting for over a decade. I hadn't decided what I wanted to do, I just thought of myself as a filmmaker because I shot and edited and designed everything in my films. But our first film at CalArts we had to do was a a beginner Super 8 course. And while everyone else was out trying to figure out how to use a Super 8 camera, I turned in this black and white film noir in Super 8. It had (laughs) Dutch camera angles, it had Russian montage editing, it had macro photography, it had dolly moves. So Everyone was just shocked that you could do all this with a Super 8 camera, but I'd just been doing it for so long, it all came naturally to me. And as a result, I both got typecast as being a Hollywood tech geek type. CalArts is extremely experimental yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of school, and, and where I was talking about Kurosawa and Wells and, and David Lean and Hitchcock, everyone else was talking about Namjoon Paik and Bill Viola and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, experimental artist. Michael Snow, yeah. Richard Kern. So I, I didn't quite fit in with the crowd necessarily, but they all needed someone who knew how to use a camera. So I, I got tapped to shoot a thesis film within my first month at CalArts. And I left CalArts with about 20 short films, uh, most of them thesis projects for oh, other, wow. other people. Have you, I always ask this question to people who started out making their own Super 8 films. Do you ever go back today and look at them? Have you transferred any of them to digital and, and, and kind of reviewed the stuff you did when you were a teenager? Yeah, I, there's one in particular that I, it was my film that I submitted to CalArts as my portfolio film, and I've transferred that to video. I'm still very happy with the way it turned out. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen most of the other ones, though. They're just all sitting in a box pretty much. Uh, part of the problem is that my soundtracks were all just on a tape cassette that I would sort of start at the same time the movie would start. <laughs> and uh, getting them to sync now would be difficult. If I, I don't even think I have half the soundtracks <laughs> anymore. So so, uh, so when you left CalArts, had you decided that you were primarily going to be a cinematographer at that time? or Yes. In fact, I was supposed to 
do a thesis project to get my master's degree at CalArts, but I ran out of time and money because I was shooting like four thesis films a semester at CalArts for oh, other wow. people. And when it came to graduation, I just asked them, I said, look, I don't think I'm going to finish my thesis film, uh, but uh, could you give me a degree as a cinematographer? And they said, there is no such thing at CalArts, but they sort of created one for me. They just sort of said, oh, okay, really? we'll get you an MFA in production with an emphasis in cinematography, even though that was something I kind of made up. Did uh, that tradition continue? Are there more cinematographers? I don't think, it, uh. I don't think anyone else has asked for that uh, <laughs> treatment. Um, so I graduated basically um, without a thesis film and uh, just started shooting right out of film school in, in kind of independent films. First film I did was with a fellow CalArts graduate, and it was a non-paying, you know, donated stock film. <laughs> and then uh, my next couple films were through CalArts graduates. You know, I went to film school not necessarily to learn how to make films, but because I didn't know how to get into the film industry. Mm-hmm. So after I got out of film school, I had friends, and they got me jobs, and it got the ball rolling for me. So it ultimately was a good thing to go to film school. While I was at film school, I, I mainly was like the class TA for the cinematography courses because I had already... My professor at CalArts, uh, Chris Malkevich, I would read his books like a decade earlier, and so when I got to CalArts, he gave me these pop quizzes every week, and I kept getting 100% on them. <laughs> and finally he just said, okay, you're going to be the TA for these the classes. Oh, nice. Um, so I was his TA for three years at CalArts. So you went basically right from uh, CalArts then, and, and you were able to, you know, go right in and work. And, you know, like, so we're talking like early 90s. The independent movement is kind of already afoot, you know, like, you know, kind of started in the late 80s with uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape around that time. But um, so the indie film world is happening. But you're in California. I think a lot of that stuff was in New York. Can you tell me, like, what was the environment at the time like for indie filmmaking? Well, I, I started out doing low-budget films uh, as a DP, but I didn't make much of a living at it. I mm. actually had to support myself with an office job at a sound effects company for the first few years after graduation. And, I, and then after my second feature, the editor in that feature got me work shooting uh, EPKs and infomercials on Betacam. So for like five years, I was doing that uh, while I was shooting low-budget films because I, for at least a decade, I was making probably less than 18000 a year as a DP. Oh, wow. And that's that's shooting three features a year because yeah. they'd only pay you at best 1000 a week and you mm-hmm. may shoot for two, three weeks and get a week of prep. So, you know, 5000 a picture and you do three a year, that's $15,000. So it wasn't enough to really support myself. I, my wife helped a lot. She was a librarian. So with her support, I kept uh, plugging away in the in the low-budget land. But what happened was my second film was a straight-to-video thriller, a genre film. And that editor on that film introduced me to a director of those sorts of films, and I shot his film, another thriller called Dead Cold, and the producer of that film only produced thrillers, basically, and he hired me to shoot about six or seven of those yeah, films. Yeah. Looking so, at your filmography, there's a lot of a lot of uh, genre kind of thrillery, kind of horror-y looking movies right at the beginning. Right, they were all a non-union, under million dollar, thirty-five millimeter films. It was a good training ground for me because uh, this producer. Um, it's funny because he he Pierre David is his name. He's a Canadian producer. Still still makes these films. He used to do a lot of uh, sort of kickboxing uh, movies and other action films. They're all at the height of the home video 
market in the 80s. They're yeah. all, so he had budgets of like two to three million dollars. And that whole market collapsed in the early 90s. The DVD market suddenly was not very profitable. And he had to find a way to make these same films now for under a million dollars to stay profitable. And so he had this script, Dead Cold, which was a thriller, not a kickboxing action film, just a, a family thriller. And the director convinced him that he could do it for half a million dollars. And the producer wasn't even sure that was doable, if 18-day feature, half a million dollars. But they hired me, and we shot it, and uh, it, he sold it, did well. So he started making more. And these budget range, they're all more like $700,000. But yep. because he sold them to European, mostly European television, and then they ended up back on Lifetime Channel, uh, German television had incredibly high broadcast standards. I mean, re really conservative standards, like no lens flares, everything has to be sharp, no diffusion on the camera. Wow. They wanted everything clean, bright, and sharp. Like Stu Siegel. Um, but it also meant that we had to use, you know, so you had to shoot 35 millimeter. We had to shoot with decent lenses. Uh, there was certain technical polish you had to spend the money for in post-production for, for transferring mm -hmm. to video. So unlike a lot of other people in my range who are doing low-budget films, often when they get into the post world, there's no money left or something, and they suddenly the director is taking their VHS dailies and somehow selling that to somebody or, or, or some other horrible technical thing. That didn't happen to me because this producer had to finish to a certain technical standard. So I, you know, I did uh, several of these films, and they all looked fine technically. But at some point, you know, I had a lot of people in my field doing similar films, and I looked around, and some of them were much older than me, still doing non-union, yeah. low-budget films, and they were in their 50s. And I was thinking that I don't want to end my career doing these films. I want to get out of this. It's not too late. You, you know, can get back. So... I said, how do I get out of uh, the non-union world? How do I get out of the genre world? And I looked around, and basically I got asked to shoot a short film uh, by Michael Polish. I was still doing short films for some CalArts people off and on over the years, and Michael Polish went to CalArts. I didn't know him while we were at CalArts, even though we are at the same time, because he was an art student and I was a film student. Yeah. But as soon as we both graduated, he, about three years later, decided to start making his own films. And he hired me to do a short film around 94, 95. And then uh, he got funding to do Twin Falls, Idaho in 98. And so I shot that for him. And Twin Falls went to Sundance Film Festival, got picked up for theatrical distribution. So suddenly I went from, not suddenly, but I, I started turning down the genre thriller stuff and started doing more of the art house independent, you know, bound for Sundance or trying to get into Sundance type yeah, yeah. movie. It didn't necessarily make more money. I made less money, in fact. But it seemed important to me to get my resume shifted away from the genre films and into something more artistic. So Twin Falls was like my 13th feature. And Twin Falls, like I said, it got into Sundance. It got a theatrical distribution from Sony. It got me an Independent Spirit Award nomination. And it got me an agent all that just from one movie. And then we did Jackpot Next, uh, which was the first 24 PhD film released in the United States uh, in 2001. And then I did North Fork, our third film, which uh, got me another Spirit Award nomination. It got me into the ASC, and it got me into the Union because uh, their next film after that was going to be a Union film. And I had plenty of credits and hours. I didn't have trouble from that aspect, getting in the union, I just didn't have a reason to join it until that moment because yeah. 
the, the money it cost to join, it was at the time, I think, $10,000 as a DP. It just didn't seem worth it unless I was actually going to interview and, and be up for a union film. And back then in the early 2000s, it was in that one and a half, two million dollar budget range that the union started taking an interest in in you if you're shooting in Los Angeles. I'd done a lot of under million dollar features, but North Fork was a million and a half budget and it was made in Montana. But as soon as I started going out from million and a half to two million dollar films, the union started knocking on the doors of the producers and uh, so I joined the union and it, it started doing union films and that helped me financially a great deal because right off the bat I was suddenly making twice as much money just in a, as a paycheck. You know, I started to be able to support myself finally. I, I kind of want to know, like, from the kind of the training ground of making these crazy low budget genre films, what are the lessons that you take from that that then you can apply to movies like Twin Falls? Well, I think everything I've done has generally been on a tight schedule, even even today with television. And there's a certain just experience that comes from just shooting and, and staying on schedule and, and on budget. And that's true whether it's an art film or a genre film. you yeah. still got 18 to 24 days, so many pages to shoot, and so much night work, so much camera movement. Uh, and a lot of the tools don't change a whole lot. It's just the what you do with them changes or the story you're telling is different. Yeah. But the... If you're shooting 35 millimeter back then, you know this is pre-digital intermediate. I was all I only did one Super 16 feature in my whole career. It was all 35 millimeter for a long time, which was again uh, sort of lucky for me. But because of that, that sort of determined how it was going to be posted, how it was going to be finished, and uh, just developed. You know, it's just a daily technical skill in terms of delivering good 35 millimeter and also uh, looking out for the problems that you might run into back then with the film processes. Yeah. Uh, I did start to experiment with things like flashing the negative and, and silver retention printing process on Twin Falls and, and some of the later films because I was finally had a good reason to. Before, it was when it was straight to video kind of thrillers, no one was really looking for a stylized approach to the processing you know that yeah. had to had deliver a fairly fine-grained also sharp that, image it sounds like that your german distributor might right. have objected to, yeah uh, might yeah. have pushed you back from their qc whatever it right. was it was even it was very hard to do a lot of those films back then because of the strange technical limitations when they would transfer from an interpositive to video back then unless you spent the money on a better telecine they often would just set your white level at whatever the brightest object was in the frame. So if you had a fluorescent, bare fluorescent tube in the frame, for example, they'd set that at 100 IRE and everything else be transferred down from that. So the whole scene would look dark because of this one tube in that shot. But you couldn't push the image back up again because they didn't want you to clip anything, yeah. even though it was just a single bright line in the frame. So those sort of things sort of drove me nuts, you know, because uh, I love contrast and, and extremes of bright and dark sometimes. And I just had to stay so much in the middle of, of the exposure range with those those uh, straight-to-video films. It does tech teach you how to be technically conservative, but then which is a good skill to have. But then you have to know when you can start to break away from that. Like when you started working with the Polish brothers, was it like, ah, now I can stretch out and try try all these, you know, more fun, interesting approaches to stuff? Yeah, I wasn't pushing things in terms of making, degrading the image so much as that with uh, Twin Falls, Idaho, I was able to really take the film and approach it the way Storaro would, where I broke it down by color, uh, sort of what I want to do thematically with yeah. light and dark and the color. And then I was 
did what Storaro was doing at the time, which was the ENR process to the prints. I always thought Storaro's films in the 80s, 90s had a very painterly color palette, and it came from this combination of using very strong colored lighting on set, but doing the silver process to the printing, which tended to mute the colors while making the blacks blacker. Mm -hmm. And that's why his films have a kind of painterly patina to them. So I was sort of trying to do that with Twin Falls by slightly flashing the negative and then doing a light silver process of the printing and then using colored lighting on the set so that my deep blue dusk light would look more like a steely blue rather than a candy blue in the final uh, print. And uh, it was great to have a film where I could do everything I had been studying and, and knew how to do on paper, but hadn't ever had the budget or the time or, or the director willing to uh, let me do that. And it's really about the the director wanting wanting something like that and, and working with filmmakers who kind of want to handcraft the it's whole thing. It's almost always about the director enabling you. When I did uh, North Fork next, we did a similar approach, but he wanted, Michael wanted a very desaturated look. And this is, again, on the edge of digital intermediates, not quite hadn't, you know, that year, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou would come out, but it wasn't in our budget range. And so I did a kind of technical paper. I said, these are the 15 ways you could not color out of an image. You can do it with art direction and costuming. You can do it with smoke. You can do it with diffusion. You, you can do it with, you know, the silver processing. You could do it by printing a black and white image over a color image in an optical printer. You could, you know, I just went on and on. And, and we ended up doing like 10 of these 15 approaches, basically. But I remember on the, when we started testing, Michael's and I were talking about how much silver processing to use for the printing. And Michael said, you should just go for broke because we'll never in the future be allowed to have complete control uh, <laughs> like we have right now. We can do whatever we want. So you want to do a full skip bleach process of the print, a heavy flash to the negative, smoke everything up. Do just, just, you know, we don't have to please anyone but ourselves, he said. So we just pretty much went sort of extreme. I did a full skip bleach to the print, and then I did a heavy 20% flash to the negative. The, the general idea with the flashing and the printing at the time was that it's like painting. If you if you mix a little white paint into all your colors, you get pastel colors. They get lighter, but they also get less saturated. Hmm. But if you mix a little black paint in all your colors, they also get less saturated, but they get darker. So leaving the black silver in the print knocks the color down by leaving black in everything but also increases the contrast of the prints. Your blacks get blacker. On the other side, when I was using smoke on the set and flashing the negative and using Promis filters, I was knocking down the color by adding white into everything. But I was also lowering the contrast because all those things lower the contrast. So I, so the flashing, the fogging, the everything was lowering the color and lowering the contrast, and the silver process was lowering the color but increasing the contrast. So my idea was that if I hit the right balance, I would get back to normal contrast. So I'd have a very flat negative <laughs> and a very high contrast print, and together I would get a kind of normal image contrast-wise but have almost no color left in the print, and that's how we approached the movie. Did you do a lot of testing to, to kind of find that, that balance? Like where was the Goldilocks zone of that? We didn't do a lot. We did some testing, but um, the trouble back then is that silver processes, the lab always charged you like a $500 setup fee every time you wanted to test it because they had to switch their machinery yeah. over. So unless you could tag team onto some other production that yeah. day. It also kind of tainted I, the bath, right? Like like if you if you did the silver retention thing, it left more stuff in the in the bath, so they had to change out the chemistry, right? 
Well, it was um, they were skipping the bleach step basically, so they were leaving silver in the uh, print that's normally washed away. Oh, okay. Uh, I have it backwards. But it's just, of course, they're not making their money back on the silver they're reclaiming, which is a little bit of cost for them. But it's also the uh, time of running your film separately. So uh, that's why most people didn't do it to their camera negative. They did it to the print. Mm -hmm. Because when you did do a print, you you maybe did it your second answer print, your third answer print. You did that $500 setup fee just once or twice. You didn't do it every day of your movie shoot. You didn't do it all 24 days of production, for example. I also always Um, thought it was like a hedge to the bet. Like if the producers hated this skip bleach look or whatever, you're doing it to the print, you're not doing it to the negative. So it's mildly undoable. Yes. It's always undoable. You can always bleach it again and and remove the silver. But the trouble is, in our case, we shot the film with it in mind. So the negative itself is extremely washed out looking. So if you printed it straight, it would look a little bland or grayish unless you did something to compensate for that. Uh, if I couldn't have done the skip bleach of the print, I would have done it to an intermediate. And if I couldn't do that, I would have figured out some way to push process uh, intermediate to add contrast back yeah. into it or something uh, or found the most high contrast print stock I could find or or think they, there were other options back then that, that have disappeared since then but yeah well because uh, you know. today you just go into resolve and you're like curve click 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 boom yeah. there it is yeah most of those you don't need to do anymore because you can pull color down digitally you can yeah. add contrast digitally even if you shoot film still yeah, but there's something to uh, to the argument of like none of it happened accidentally. None of it was like, hey, we'll shoot it in post. We'll we'll find the look later. You had to figure out the look you were going for before you shot it and go through these extraordinarily interesting uh, onset processes and then you know chemical processes to get the look you knew you were going for. Yeah. And today you would nobody would ever do that. Well, part of the look of the film is also the art direction. We painted everything black and white. We had gray paint in the ketchup bottles. We had soda oh, black. Really? We sewed a black and white American flag. It was on. A it's so funny that my memory of, of it is colorful. Of North Fork. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. talking about North Fork, I'm, not, I'm not Twin, Twin Falls. Falls. Yeah, Twin Falls is colorful, but North Fork is very desaturated. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was a lot of its art direction, so uh, it's baked into the image that way too. So moving on to, and, and I know you already brought it up, but uh, Jackpot. So this is like one of the really early, uh, it's, it, it wasn't even, I guess it was digital. You shot at 24P. Like, was that on like the, like one of the Sonys or? Yeah, it's on the, F- it's on the F900. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you're like kind of an early adopter of that. Like back then we had, I'm, I just lost the name of the movie, the horror movie that Charles Pappard was the Steadicam guy on. Session 9? Session 9, that yeah. was it. I had no, that thought Udo uh, shot that. So I had thought until until uh, I looked it up today, I had thought that Session Nine was the first 24p uh, digital movie that had been released, but it was Jackpot. Well, it's interesting you, you mentioned that because Session Nine came out in the theaters two weeks after Jackpot, so yeah. we beat Session Nine by two weeks, but could have easily been them. But you're 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 getting made right around the same yes. time. As we were all shooting. Basically, with the cameras that came out for George Lucas to shoot uh, Attack of the Clones with. Yeah. It's just that we all beat him to the theater because we didn't have a year of post-production yeah. the way he had on his film. But, yeah, basically our second film, uh, Jackpot, which we shot in 2000, they had a budget of like $250,000, and that included finishing. They, they budgeted all the way through 
you know, finishing the movie, which some people don't do, which unfortunately. But they had said we have 250, including posts, to do this whole movie in like 15 days or something very quickly as a road trip film. And this was the time of Dogma 95. So uh, Chuck and Buck and these other, uh, the idiots. um, Well, Dogma uh, 95 was like a whole movement. It was Thomas Vinterberg and Lars von Trier. It was a bunch of Danish filmmakers. And it was all like, we're just going to show up on location. We're not going to use any lights. We're not going to, we're not going to, the one thing that nobody ever did that was one of the Dogma 95 rules was they all took credit. One of them was the director was not supposed to be credited, but like, and, and if you watch like, um, the celebration, Thomas Vinterberg is not credited in it, but of course everyone knows that he, that he shot it, but it kind of led to an aesthetic that, you know, was like, uh, Harmony Corinne, uh, kind of played with it with Julian Donkey Boy and, uh. And stuff like that. Yeah, that was all what was in the air in 1999, 2000. And the Polish brothers felt they should do their own DV film. I just felt that they weren't going to be happy with the visual quality of DV equipment because they care so much about the image. So I was sort of looking into what was the best digital equipment out there that we could use. And I was... I'd just seen The Anniversary Party, which was shot by John Bailey Mm -hmm. on a PAL DV cam camera fairly high end for for dv cam professional dv cam equipment from europe and i looked into trying to get hold of that camera but it turned out there was only one body in the united states oh, really? and it was not available so i looked into pal digi beta cam equipment and the rental prices were just ext- really high because it's pal equipment and i was looking in all the video catalogs and i started looking at the high definition camera equipment and they were renting regular high definition was renting for the same price as pal dv cam or digi beta cam. Actually, it makes total sense. <laughs> so so I started thinking, well, maybe I should look shoot this in 1080i, which is all that existed in high def, uh, just for the image quality. And uh, around 2000, there was a 1080i 60 fields per second camera out called the HW700A. And I looked into that equipment. And then just before, like two weeks before we were about to begin production, we still hadn't found a camera yet, uh, the Sony F900 showed up in Los Angeles. Uh, Sim Video had bought one for a TV series in Canada, and they wanted to promote this camera and to TV shows in Los Angeles. So they brought one down, and they were showing it to Rodney Charters, who was in the process of shooting Roswell in Super 16. And Rodney tested the F900, and he sh- and a lot of the cast members in the Polish Brothers films were in this TV series that Rodney shot. And they so knew Rodney, and some of them were, I think, working on Roswell as well. But they all brought me and Michael Polish and Mark Polish to the camera test that Rodney did of the F900. And the camera test looked great, as all those early F900 demos were at the time. So I asked some video, uh, what are you going to do with this camera? And they said, well, two weeks, it's got to go back to Canada to shoot, you know, Earth's final conflict. And I said, well, we got this 15-day feature we're going to start in a week. If you just leave the camera with us, we'll shoot a whole movie on it. And, uh, <laughs> and it'll be a sort of test case for the camera. So uh, Sim Video agreed, and we shot Jackpot on the F900, and we got uh, Post Group to figure out the 24P Post end of it. And yeah, that was that was a very complicated uh, situation, 24P, back in the day. Like, you know, people who are making films today just decide, you know, which frame rate to shoot at and live with it. But 24P was kind of a workflow uh, hassle at the at the beginning. Yeah, it was. There was a lot of things to figure out. In fact. Uh, one of the early things was whether to shoot 24 or 23.976. Yes. And we shot 24 because films were shot at 24. 
And I remember asking the, the sound editor, how's the mix going? And she goes, oh, it's going great, but I'm having to slip the sync on all the uh, audio every reel. Oh, I wonder if I should have shot 23.976. <laughs> there's a very boring technical reason why we still shoot 23.976. And it's, it's a legacy of NTSC that doesn't need to exist anymore, but it still does. Anyway, uh, I, I did jackpot in 24P. And because of that, I got asked to shoot several other indie films on the F900 mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. And um, on, on, uh, before we move on, on Jackpot, did you stick to kind of a dogma aesthetic? Did you, like, a- as a DP, were you, like, living with the light at the location? Like, how much were you modifying? No, I, we didn't approach the film with any of the dogma rules. It was just a low-budget film. It's about karaoke singers mm-hmm. and a road trip. So... We filmed uh, like several bars uh, over the course of 15 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always seemed to be in a bar, a bar bathroom, or in a car every day for like 15 days. So my lighting pack, which was mostly just uh, some small lights and some kino flows, but I had a, I wanted to play a lot with color because of the karaoke bar aspect. So I did a lot of color gelling on fluorescent tubes and, and things just to bring out uh, sort of the lighting effects we wanted. How did you find working with a camera like that, being being that you couldn't go back to a textbook or a colleague or or anyone and talk about this camera? You're one of the first. You're the one who's going to write the textbook on this on this camera. How, what was it like working with something that you that there was no real tradition of having been worked with like that? It wasn't that hard. I mean, partly when you do very low budget films like this without a lot of budget for testing, uh, you just sort of have to embrace whatever the camera can give you. So my test really was just because the whole film was a road trip picture in a car with a black actor and a white actor, I needed to know how the camera would handle that contrast difference. So I got a black person, a white person in a car, and I shot (laughs) them uh, in bright light and in dark situation just to see how it would handle sunlight and shadow yeah. And, you know, these sort of high contrast situations and it handled it okay. Did it? I would imagine that camera would have been really difficult to get that to match. No, it wasn't bad. It wasn't like film, but mm-hmm. it wasn't bad. I mean, the thing that you have to remember with digital is you see what you're getting live on the monitor. So when there's a problem, you see the problem and you have some ability to tweak it or fix it yeah. uh, within limits. So the camera's dynamic range wasn't great, but it wasn't uh, as bad as some earlier video equipment. Also, the other advantage I had was during the 90s, I was making my living, besides doing DP and indie films, was shooting these EPKs and, and industrials on Sony Betacam equipment. And the Sony F900 was more or less the Sony Digi Betacam on steroids. It was yeah. when I turned on the camera, the menu system, the buttons, everything was just like the Betacams I've been using for the last five years doing infomercials. Oh, sweet. So. I didn't have any learning curve in terms of using the camera. You know, you pop a tape in and, and you, you go with it. it There's always a question back then as to what special sauce of menu settings people should use. And I wrote down everything carefully that I ended up picking uh, based on playing around with levels in terms of sharpness level and other things. And every F900 film I did after that, I, I tweaked those numbers. I kept a cheat sheet with me and I would try different settings out. But... Ultimately, I kind of leaned towards what Panavision was doing when they bought the F900, which was to turn everything off. They just, they turned off sharpening, they turned off the color matrix, they they sort of treated it as close to a unprocessed signal as you can get out of that camera, uh, figuring that, you know, do no harm is the best way to, <laughs> to approach that. So 
the the one thing that was different from what I was doing with the F nine hundred as opposed to what Panavision was doing, and some other people were starting to use it uh, once it became popular, was everyone was determined to make it into a professional piece of filmmaking gear. You know, bigger viewfinder, yeah. bigger, brighter, better lenses. You know, everything was more sturdy, better mounting points. But the, doing all that made the camera twice as heavy. And because I came out of a Betacam infomercial world, to me it was great that I could take a camera and put it into a duffel bag and pull it out and throw it on some sticks and start shooting with, with it with a zoom lens on it. So I wasn't trying to shoot these early F900 films like a 35 millimeter movie, but in digital. I was saying, well, if this is basically a Sony Betacam, how would I shoot a movie on a Sony Betacam? How would I take the advantages of an EPK lightweight camera and shoot a, a film with it? Uh, and that's how, my, I, how I approached those F900 films. I tried not to make them completely into just like a movie shoot, but with a digital camera. I tried yeah. to make them into a hybrid film digital kind of approach to everything. Use the camera for what I thought it was good for. Otherwise, you know, why not just shoot film? Like, does it t- does it change the language of your cinematography at all? Like, are there certain moves or certain things you would do with a film camera that you were like, nah, when you when you know, or was there more of a handheld kind of an approach that you were more comfortable with with the? Well, with- I, when I was shooting film, I tended to be one of these snobs who shot on prime lenses, and mm. when I shot with the camera, this F nine hundred, I tended to stick to zoom lenses. So some of it was a zoom aesthetic versus a prime lens aesthetic. It had yeah. nothing to do with film versus digital. It was just I shot uh, quickly on a zoom lens when I when I used these video cameras. So that was one stylistic change. Uh, being able to change the shutter speed and the ISO, depending on the situation, was a new thing at the time. You know, film, you had just film stocks. Yeah. And maybe you'd push them or something. But with this F900, if you really got into a pickle in terms of low light levels, you could reduce the shutter angle. You could, you could um, shoot with a longer shutter speed you could boost the gain and get into some fairly low-level kind of photography. It didn't look great. It got very noisy and and kind of grayish looking, but you did get images that were different than what you could get with a film camera pushed. Because when you push film stock, it gets more contrasty. You know, when you push film, you don't really increase its sensitivity. You're just taking whatever got captured on the negative and and push it to be denser to to show up better. Yeah. But it's still whatever the negative can capture. So it tends to get higher in contrast the more you push it. Uh, digital doesn't do that. You push it, it just gets brighter and noisier. So you saw these films like Collateral at the time. Yeah, I remember um, having my all mind these, blown. All these night yeah. scenes where there was kind of an openness to the night work. You know, the blacks weren't great, but you had you could see forever into the shadows like you would. Yeah, would you'd if see you, into the sky. Like, right, you'd see I the glow in yeah. the horizon. You would see down the dark alleyways. You would see underneath cars. You would see information in the shadows that you weren't getting on film yeah. uh, at that, those sort of low levels. And that was sort of a look I could explore when I needed to. I uh, had to do a lot of night stuff on Jackpot because there was a road trip both day and night. So uh, I did some fairly low light level stuff on that film. And I continued to play around in digital for the next four or five films. But then what happened was budget started finally climbing in the mid-2000s, and suddenly I had the budget to shoot film again. There was mm-hmm. no reason to shoot digital anymore. By 2003, three, four. You know, I was. I did uh, Astronaut Farmer. I, I 
I did some, I did Solstice with Dan Myrick, and I started yeah, yeah. doing uh, Big Love for television for HBO. I was shooting film for all of those and didn't have to go back to digital until the end of the 2000s when suddenly the next wave of digital cameras came along, the Genesis camera, the red one, yeah. these things. So I, could, I went to this period where I stopped shooting digital for like five years and then came back to it. When you, and you brought up Solstice, and uh, Dan Myrick is a is a really good friend of mine, and I went to college with him, and uh, I reached out to him when I knew that I was going to be talking to you. And he, one of the things he said about you was that you storyboarded a lot of the stuff, like that you would that you would actually draw boards for the scenes you were shooting with him. Is that something you do on most of your projects? I haven't storyboarded much in years because we I have the budget to hire a storyboard artist, and yeah. it's it's a time consuming thing to draw everything. I did this film, uh, Akeel and the Bee, in the mid-2000s, and the director had spent years trying to get it funded, and he had storyboarded the whole film except for the final act himself. And he actually let me storyboard the uh, the climax in the uh, final uh, Spelling oh, wow. Bee event. But he had storyboarded the whole movie up to that point, uh, Doug Atchison, and I found it interesting when we started shooting the movie because he drew them instead of me is that he drew everything in focus as a, as a person drawing wood. Yeah. But once we got on the set, it constantly became, well, I can't have everything in focus, so what do, you, what do we do when she's at the microphone and this person's behind her back and do you want them to be in focus? We did a lot of stuff with split diopters and tilt focus lenses oh, cool. and other things because it got to the point where I couldn't replicate his drawing without doing some sort of, <laughs> effect to to hold two people in focus that wouldn't be in focus normally so that's sort of the what happened when when you just draw everything you just you just draw everyone's sharp and you just assume they're all talking it's hard in a spelling bee film because uh everyone's got a line of dialogue you know the they the person at the mic says spell this word and the person competing spells the word and then then the person responds back to them so you're either going to ping pong in editing between two people talking, or you're going to put them in a two-shot together, but then you're going to ping-pong focus back and forth, back and forth, which is yeah. very distracting, particularly because we shot that movie in anamorphic. It had been extremely distracting to rack focus all the time. So there was and it's lots... Kind of a, I mean, it's a, I wouldn't say it's a family film, but it's like a very family-friendly film. You know, yeah. it's 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 a deeper film than that, but it, it, I, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to crap on family films. I'm just saying, like, it's it's, yeah. it's a film that you would take kids to see. Yeah, and, it was, so, and so you wouldn't be like all complicated and rack focusy and anamorphic kind of thing. Yeah, we we did do some moments since it was all storyboarded, and he was trying to make that film not be too uh, dull in terms of a spelling bee setting. He said his approach to storyboarding was that I want to treat this like a basketball movie, you know. So some scenes are going to be swish pans. We're going to swish pan from the announcer to the person. This one's going to be a 360 tracking shot, so we're, we're going to keep the camera moving for this scene just because this, it's a naturally static situation. Someone's yeah. at a mic competing, uh, talking to someone else at a microphone. But it is, it is a sports so, movie in a sense. Yeah. Right. So we treated it like we're doing a basketball film, and occasionally the camera moves were unmotivated other than to add some excitement, you know, yeah. fast push-ins, whip pans, sort of a Scorsese hmm. style at times, just to liven up the, a kind of naturally static si- uh, situation. But that was all storyboarded by the director. But the focus problems was just something he hadn't anticipated till we got on the set, and he realized that I couldn't hold everything in focus, and we had to decide how we are going to deal with that. And some sometimes it just dealt with, with split diopters and things. 
when you're boarding a, a movie, like, do you sit in the room with the director and like thumbnail it out with the director? Or do you go off and say, here's the scene as I see it and, pre- and present it to the director? Well, today I, I would sit with the director and the storyboard artists and mm-hmm. we would uh, discuss the shots one by one. And the, the storyboard artists would take their notes. Uh, back then, generally, I would uh, sit with the director and talk through the scenes and take a lot of notes and then go out and draw them out. Occasionally, I did stuff in advance and showed the director, you know, later. Like when I did North Fork, what happened was it was supposed to be a winter story, but we had to shoot it in the spring because it was all day exterior and we didn't have enough daylight hours in winter to shoot the movie. So it had to be shot in spring faked for winter. And because of that, they were worried of losing snow up in Montana. So they sent me like three weeks early out there with a camera. And I spent a week just driving around with a camera assistant uh, filming winter scenes. Anything that said ice and snow, I would film frozen rivers and oh, nice. old barn, old barns covered in icicles and snowy mountaintops. And, and it was a great experience of shooting landscapes on my own. I normally don't get to do my own second unit kind of work. But this was like me doing my sort of still photography work uh, on my own with a film camera, just setting up carefully composed shots of, of, of nature. But uh, at night, you know, for a week, I had nothing to do and up in this hotel in Montana except storyboards. So I would go home and, or go back to my hotel room and I would storyboard uh, scenes out and then show them to Michael when he got to Montana. But, you know, the, his scripts are so visual that uh, you're just sort of drawing what he's describing on paper, more or less. I'm, mm-hmm. just, I'm creating certain compositional effects I think might be interesting in, in the widescreen format we're dealing with. It was part of the challenge of that film. A lot of scenes involve five or six characters in every scene. So part of my job was simply just to plot out how I'm going to fit five or six heads in the frame and and (laughs) who's going to be in the camera lens and how to stage these things on paper in advance so he didn't lose too much time on set trying to arrange uh, all these actors. And uh, does that... How does the rubber meet the road when you're doing something like that, and then and then you bring in the actors, and one of the actors is like, "Well, actually, I'll be over here," or "I feel like this," or uh, were their sets run in a different way? You know, would, uh, they, would they say, "Here's the boards"? Like, yeah, but- I think um, I've heard that it's like this on the Coen Brothers films that you know they actually put the storyboards on the back of the the sides, and the actors see what the shots are going to be, and yeah. and they more or less act in the frames that that's, have been planned in advance. With the Polish Brothers films, it was like that. Michael really wanted to figure out the shot on before the actor showed up on set and just sort of lay it out saying, you're going to be here, you're going to be there, the camera's going to be here. It helped that we were doing very proscenium wide shots, often they're very composed, but we had a big frame for the actors to move in. So it was not like... Uh, trying to do a complex steady cam move where someone had to hit this mark and this mark and this mark. It was, yeah. it was more of a canvas that they were sort of allowed to act in. But for the most part, we never had much objections from the actors, but we never tried to do something that really should have been blocked in advance, you know, like, yeah. uh, like what we do on Maisel. You really have to do this with the actors. You can't steady cam through several rooms and go around furniture without the actors involved in the process because... Uh, it's just too difficult. To, but again, Maisel seems like such a designed, like every every aspect of it, you know, obviously the art direction and the wardrobe and the hair and the makeup. But the way the camera works in that show, 
it feels alive like these characters are really in this but it all at the same time it kind of has this mm-hmm. I, I don't know Preston Sturges kind of a mm-hmm. choreographed quality to it yeah I think that most of the the single camera you know unedited sequences in Maisel it's it's almost like covering a stage play but with a lot of uh, motion yeah energy and movement but it's not we don't force the actors to stand where they don't feel comfortable standing or anything like that. We block it. We yeah. let them move. And then after they've, we've sort of blocked the scene, Amy will start to sort of choreograph the camera around where they were. And occasionally we'll have to change a little of the blocking to make the camera work because we're on locations where we can't move walls and or furniture can't be moved out of the way. So an actor has to go this way around a chair rather than that way around a chair. And, and that's sort of a dance we have to do. Uh, some shots are more stylized that they're almost like a dance number where yeah. someone moves through a room and people part, you know, like in waves. Uh, we often will bring in dancers, actually. the um, Amy's, uh, our choreographer, Marguerite, would come in and bring in dancers to play, to be extras. And so that the uh, shoppers will just cross the camera lens right at the right moment or a waiter will come through the frame just at the right moment uh, yeah. because it's been choreographed. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it kind of has that, that patina of, of like a mat. It, it, it feels like the best kind of presentational series. I mean, when I started watching it, I, I started watching it actually because I know Alex Borstein because Alex Borstein was Dan Myrick's uh, neighbor. Yeah. Uh, so I've known Alex as long as Dan was in L.A., which is, you know, maybe whatever, 15 years ago. And uh, and so I was like, oh, cool, Alex is on the show. And then I started watching it. I was like, this is magical. I mean, like, and, and, it, and it is such a perfect little... Not little. It, I'm, I'm sure it, it feels enormous, but it, it feels like uh, it's like a it's in love with its periodness, but even feels like something that would have been made in that period a little bit. I don't know. It, it bridges so many different styles at once. It's it's just a, a wonderful thing to see, and it, it's interesting, you know, like knowing your visual, knowing visually where where you have come from, but also like you know Dan telling me about you having done storyboards and stuff it's like naturally you would be part of the visual construction but are you saying that like how much of the visual construction of a show like that happens in pre-production when you're pre-producing an episode and how much of it is is what you're coming with uh, coming up with on the day well on a television show even on a show like Maisel a lot of it is on the day because the basically there's not a lot of time for prep this really yeah the scripts come in we get a, a outline of the script early but the actual script itself uh they're writing up to the last minute and uh you know we'll see the final script just the day before the cast read through and then the tech scout happens so maybe on the tech scout we'll discuss uh what was written mm-hmm. uh there are obviously some things have to be planned in advance. You know, you need to know whether we need 200 extras or 100 extras or if I need a technocrane or that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But some of it, you know, is also done on the day. You know, I think the really complicated stuff where we need special equipment, obviously we know in advance and we have to plan for that. But the sort of more complex dialogue scene where it's we're in the apartment set or we're in a, a restaurant or something where there's no special equipment it's just a very complex steady cam move that's really done on the day with the blocking with the actors and and my challenge then is to light it because uh often you know it ends up being a 360 degree shot and after the blocking's over i'm i'm now have to figure out how much <laughs> light this for 360 degrees and get it in on on schedule too yeah. which you know television doesn't have like super long schedules necessarily yeah 
I mean, on that show, it's great because they don't shoot a lot of coverage. So if we take half a day to do one complex shot that covers eight pages of dialogue, and then after lunch we only have three or four setups to finish covering the scene, that that's fine. If they if they need to take a lot of hours to do one shot, they will do it. But they won't then demand we do thirty setups after lunch to to make up the difference. You know, it's yeah, it's not a show with a high setup count per day. So it's good. Their directing style matches their editing style. You know, they they want to play things in as much and without a cut if if possible, uh, or a very minimal amount of coverage. But then the flip side is we do a lot of takes then, because if we're going to do it all in one shot, yeah, then she's you know going to do it until she gets it right. Exactly. So, That's uh, the 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 problem with oneers is yeah, it has to be perfect all the way through. Yeah. So we have a very good Steadicam operator. Uh, Who's your Steadicam operator? Jim McConkey. This is a brother, Larry McConkey, who is uh, Scorsese's, you know, Robbie Richardson steady cam operator in some shows. And it w- I almost imagine that, like, the behind-the-scenes making of some of those shots is even more impressive than the shots themselves because they, they have so many moving parts in them, but then they become, like, one seamless thing. Yeah, it's it's pretty fun to watch from, from behind the scenes just yeah. what's involved and pulling off these shots. Congratulations on on an Emmy Award. That's amazing. Can you talk a little bit about the episode uh, that you won the Emmy for? And also just what's it like winning an Emmy Award? That's got to be, you know, for, for the work that you've done uh, next to an, a Best Cinematography Oscar, that's that's as, as great as it gets, really. Yeah, it was it was a shock to to win. I was, was a bit stunned. It was uh, really it was just well, I was up against Game of Thrones, you know, mm-hmm. so uh I was, it was a bit of a daze when they called my name. It was very f- exciting. It was, I was happy for that episode to win because uh, it was a very special episode. It was shot in Paris, uh, first episode of the second season. And it's, it's just, uh, it's got a lot of strong visual elements that even more so than the show normally does because of going to Paris, I think. Um, that had it, some like outrageous shot that even like transitions us to Paris, right? Yeah, there was a transition where the New York, the Empire State Building uh, flips upside down and becomes yeah. the Eiffel Tower. That was brilliant. That, that was conceived by our visual effects uh, supervisor, Leslie Foster Robson. It's a, it was just a great episode. And it was, but just a week before I was supposed to get on the plane to start my prep and shoot in, in Paris, my brother passed away. Oh, no. And I had to suddenly deal with uh, my family. I had to rush out to my parents' house out in the desert and uh, and be with them. But I couldn't stick around for the funeral, um, oh. which was going to happen like two weeks after I got to Paris. And this being such an ambitious shoot in Paris, I couldn't really miss the prep part of it because I was basically we're going to land and scout and order the equipment and figure out and hire the crew and yeah. figure out how we're going to do those two weeks in Paris. And it'd almost be like either I give it all up and, and say I can't do that ep- those two episodes um, or just sort of uh, leave and, and let my family uh, deal with the funeral and everything without me there. So it's what I end up doing. So winning the Emmy for that episode to me was, was nice in the sense that it felt like uh, it was all worth it to some extent, that, you know, that it was a special episode clearly. Um, yeah, and uh, but still, I I still question whether I made the right choice. Uh, you know, there's nothing much I could do other than be there for my family. But I, 
it would have been nice to be in there for my family. So it was just a bittersweet time, you know, to be in Paris and and be sightseeing and, and scouting and and going to the Louvre and and but also dealing with my family over the phone and and dealing with this whole tragedy yeah. at the same time was it just it's just the nature like your career the best thing that happened in my career is happening at the worst thing that happened to my family simultaneously oh. and it's just all happening at the same moment is just some of the surreal aspects of this uh, job well yeah i mean it's uh you know the life doesn't stop while we're while we're working on these projects and sometimes major life uh, situations happen and, and, and it's, it's, it is a weird business because, you know, if you were working in a bank, you could just say, I'm out of here for the next three weeks or whatever. But it, but so much is riding on it in that episode. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful episode and it's, it's amazing. And it doesn't surprise me that it beat Game of Thrones, even though I'm a huge fan of Game of Thrones. Um, you know, it, it really had, it's just a beautiful episode and it's well done. And, and the style of it is, I, I wouldn't even compare it to Game of Thrones or anything else. Like it, it, it belongs up there. But yeah, that's that is that is rough. I'm sorry that that happened to your family. Yeah, it it was a tough time. But uh, you know, it was a great honor to be on this show. And I think I'm very blessed because I'm working with some of the best people in the business right now. You know, the, like the production designer Bill Groom came out of uh, Boardwalk Empire. Oh wow! He, he had like four Emmys for that show. Uh, Donna Zakawa, our costume designer, had worked with Woody Allen for years, and and her stuff is just should be on every fashion magazine in existence right now. It's just amazing designs. So, and the cast is just so talented: Tony what? Shalhoub, Rachel Brosnahan, Alex Borstein. And, yeah. You know, they're all just brilliant actors, and then the writing and directing is so good. So it's just you know an opportunity that every DP wishes they they could have. Yeah. Basically. Like, what is the true north on that show? Like, what's the thing that it is most, I, I don't want to say referencing because it's not, it doesn't feel derivative, but it, but it, it feels infused with a spirit that, um, that I've seen in other things. Like, what is it that you go to for inspiration for that show? Well, it's, it's a somewhat evolved since the pilot, but they, when they called me on the pilot, uh, they mainly talked about what they didn't want, which was they didn't want a pastel faded uh, period, distant period quality. They didn't want it to be all honeycomb colored. They wanted it to be vibrant and energetic, but mostly they talked about the comedy and the energy of the scenes, the vitality of of portraying uh, the gaslight and the Greenwich Village and the beat yeah. poets and all that, that period. Um, so we talked a lot about the feeling for that, that late 50s, that what I sort of call industrial optimism, you know, where, <laughs> where, um, the offices are all pristine and overlit and with fluorescent lights, but it, but it feels kind of this modernist energetic, uh, in quality to for those scenes. And then other scenes in New York still have a kind of old world quality to them, but still with the, the vitality and the energy of New York city with all the people and the movement. So we mostly talked about movement and energy and, and how she wanted the camera to be able to go from room to room to room without cutting and following the actors in these tiny apartments. And we had, uh, she asked me to look at Hannah and her sisters as a film that she felt uh, hmm. the cast looked very good in, was shot yeah. in real locations. It had a kind of reality about New York, and yet it also had a kind of romantic quality. And a lot I of totally Woody see Allen's that, and films. I never would have picked that out 
in a million years. A lot of Woody Allen's films have that combination of of naturalism and romanticism, and they still feel very grounded in New York City. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So Woody Allen was an inspiration, but also um, 50s movies, 50s advertising, but also I personally am a big old movie fan, so Amy and I often talk about Technicolor musicals, you know, just we on the set, you know, waiting for a lighting setup, we pulled up uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers one day when we were up in the woods in the Catskills, and we just watched oh, cool. the whole, you know, axe-tossing dance number while we're waiting for the light to change, and uh, we'll, we'll watch scenes from Singing in the Rain just for fun on the set. We just, we both have a love for these older films, and uh, I love Technicolor. I just love the colors. I love the romanticism, and I find myself subconsciously sometimes referencing these these classic movies without even trying you know i just naturally something about the costumes and the sets make me want to heighten a certain moment and give it a kind of glamour now and then that doesn't stray too far from the naturalism of the show but still is a little heightened yeah uh that's sort of you know what i'm looking for i remember we had to do just an ordinary pickup shot we owed uh, a close uh, a two shot of Rachel and her boyfriend uh, kissing on a sidewalk we we just owed this shot we didn't have it from an earlier episode and on the last day of the last episode of season two we were doing this baseball field scene at night but before that we went to the street that sort of matched the street they originally shot on and picked up this this two shot profile two shot and I just lit the street, and I put a little strong backlight from a street lamp effect on them. But when I looked at the dailies frames, I realized they looked very similar to a romantic moment in um, Breakfast at Tiffany's, where George Papard and, and Audrey Hepburn kiss. Oh. And, you know, the way they're framed. He's in a trench coat. He was in a trench coat. He's on the left. She's on the right. They're backlit. It's just I was I subconsciously had, oh, that's had awesome. sort of matched the kind of romantic moment uh, from that movie uh, in the way I'd set up that, that two-shot. And I, and I just find myself falling into these kind of, um, you know, romantic uh, moments, I think. I, I just, I think I have a natural tendency towards a, a romanticism that I sort of try to blend with my need to be naturalistic. Uh, and that's it's, it's, this show allows me to do that essentially, you know. That's and, great. So, and, and obviously, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel is is the show that you're working on now. But you started moving towards television. Did you make a a, a conscious de- decision that you were going to focus more on television? I didn't consciously think about going into television. I was in independent film world and mid two thousands. Indie films were doing okay. You know, all the studios had uh, indie divisions. I did. Uh, Astronaut Farmer was probably my biggest budget feature film. Yeah, with Billy Bob at, Thornton. It's yeah, really cool I movie. mean, it was that and Jennifer's Body were the two features I did that that had budgets above ten million dollars. Yeah, were, they were like fifteen, twelve, fifteen million dollars, longish schedules, like thirty-five day, forty day schedules. But that was sort of the end of that era too, because by the time Jennifer's Body actually came out in two thousand and nine. 
all those divisions were closed. Fox Atomic made Jennifer's Body, but the time Jennifer's Body was released, there was no Fox Atomic <laughs> anymore. So Well, we were kind of in a recession, and everyone yeah. was like, screw the specialty uh, wing here. Yeah, well, they hadn't been as successful as everyone thought they were going to be. You know, the independent films wasn't as financially profitable as the studios thought, partly because they had to make them union films. They had to do them for a certain budget, which helped me as a DP. I, you know, I came into that world just when indie films were taking off in the early 2000s, and they went union. I joined the union in 2003, and I started doing these union features, and the films that usually made for $2 million were being made for $5 million. $5 million films were being made for 7 to $10 million. So the budgets were climbing, which was yeah. great. But then it all collapsed back again just about the time I started doing television, and television has sort of replaced a lot of the mid-level feature world. What used to be all the creative energy being put into like the $20 million dramas are now being put into uh, Amazon and Netflix shows and, and yep. things and the mid-range features really dried up. So it was good that I got into television when I did, but what just happened was is that um, I did a film in New Orleans with Dan Myrick called Solstice, which Adam Daldeo had produced. And Adam is like a childhood friend of uh, Peter Freelander, who is a assistant to Tom Hanks's production company at the time who was making Big Love and so second season of Big Love they were looking for a new DP to co-DP on the show and they didn't want the television DP they wanted a uh, indie feature DP so Adam recommended me to Peter and Peter recommended me to the producers I interviewed and I got the job and so I did that second season of Big Love then what happened was I was supposed to do the third season of Big Love, but the Writers Guild strike hit, and I think that was 2007. Yep. And basically we were supposed to start shooting that uh, November, and nothing happened. So by February I started looking for another job, and I got the script for Jennifer's Body. And I went off to Vancouver that spring to do Jennifer's Body in 2008, and Amanda Seyfried, who was in Solstice and in Big Love and in Jennifer's Body, it was like my third project with Amanda. Big Love was like, oh, great. You, you know, Amanda, Susan Amanda's wrapped on Gen- on Jennifer's Body. We'll start up season three of Big Love. But then Michael and Mark Polish got funding to do two features back-to-back that summer. And as soon as I wrapped on Jennifer's Body, I went straight into doing the two films for them. And I didn't go back to Big Love. So that fall... Diablo Cody, who had written Jennifer's Body, had a TV show called The United States of Terror that she was actually doing the pilot for simultaneously with Jennifer's Body. And Uta Briskowitz shot the pilot. But when they went to series that fall, that was for Spielberg's production company and DreamWorks. I think Diablo Cody recommended me for that. So I interviewed for that show. And I got on that show as a Showtime show. And then for the next few years, what happened every year was that Big Love would call me and say, well, are you free to do... Oh, wow. Season seven, you know, season, uh, season four, season five. But the United States of Terror would say, look, we're coming back for season two, season three. And I got stuck where if I went back to Big Love, it would be with the Big Love crew, which wasn't my crew. It was the crew that the first DP originally hired, a great crew. Or I'd go back to United States of Terror with my crew. But I couldn't bring them on to Big Love. So bidding was, war, man. You should it have just was had sort a, of one of those things where... A cable bidding war. You know, a lot of my crew members would have been out of work if I'd gone back to Big Love. So I decided to stick to United States of Terror instead uh, and also build that relationship with DreamWorks. And because of that, I did Smash for, for DreamWorks next. And 
and so I ended up in New York City for two years. So, David, just jumping in here for, here for a second, I was looking at uh, Big Love 2007, and it's a really uh, illustrious group of people, that, uh, including yourself, that are in there as DPs for the show. And uh, I, I understood that perhaps maybe there was a lot of cameras being used, but uh, uh, Bill Wages, also a friend of the show, has, uh, was one of the DPs, as well as Haskell Wexler came in and did an episode, it looks like. And uh, James Glennon was also maybe part of the series. Can you talk a little bit about that 2007 season? Yeah, 2007, the the year I did the second season of Big Love, basically I was hired to co-DP with Jim Glennon, who had done the first season. And what I didn't know, no one knew at the time, was that Jim had cancer. Oh, no. And basically... uh, I was supposed to do the second episode. Jim did the first episode of the second season. I got a call saying that Jim was in the hospital and he couldn't finish the last day of his episode. So I came in the day early to shoot the last day of episode one. Then I started episode two and Jim was still in the hospital. So they said, can you shoot episode three? So I went straight from episode two to straight into episode three. Yikes. And then they said, Jim's still in the hospital. Can you do episode four? And I, I said, basically, I was hired to co-DP. I, I'm not prepping now any of these episodes if, you, if I'm not alternating. So Jim from the hospital called his friend Haskell Wexler, and Haskell came in to, to shoot episode four. Oh, my God. I didn't know that he shot that show. Yeah, so Haskell shot episode four so while I could prep episode five. And then the last, on Big Love, every last day of an episode was the start of the next episode. We always had an overlap day. It's basically an 11 day schedule where the 11th day was a overlap day so you would get uh, next episode would start filming on the 11th day and the previous episode would have a splinter crew come in and finish up what they owed wow that actually sounds grueling for the crew yeah they always did it on a stage day so we're on the stages that day Uh, so the last day of episode 4 Haskell's episode first day of my episode 5 we got a call that Jim had passed away in the Uh. hospital so I did episode five, and then they asked me to do episode six because there was still not another DP to alternate with. So I did episode six from, uh, right after five, and then they hired Bill Wages to alternate, at which point we only had, I think, 10 total. So I ended up shooting seven out of the 10 episodes that season. Wow. Um, and the last couple uh, I alternated with Bill Wages on, which was great for me because I love, I've always loved Bill Wages' work. I've been a big fan of his ever since I saw Lincoln, the miniseries, and his westerns. And I learned a lot watching him because it's not often, I taught myself cinematography, you know, from reading American Cinematographer and watching movies and then making my own films. So until I did Big Love, I'd actually never seen another cinematographer at work. <laughs> and to actually see another cinematographer lighting the same sets the same actors doing similar scenes around a dinner table or in the kitchen or in the bedrooms. It was just great. I'd suddenly seen how someone else would approach lighting these dialogue scenes. And Did you steal any moves? I stole a lot from Bill Wages because Bill had this style of working that was all bounce lighting using either Lico's or blondes bouncing the bed sheets and stuff. So it was very soft lit, but with bounce bounces everywhere. And it was it had a very beautiful quality to the lighting. Uh, that I just started copying, basically, and I still do a lot of Lico bouncing today because of that. But I, I learned a wa- lot watching Bill, and even watching Haskell, of course, I learned something from him. But Haskell, he took such a sort of minimalist approach to his episode. He he kind of 
use as much available light as he could. If if he turned on all the lights in the room and he only got a one four, he would shoot at a one four. You know, it was <laughs> it was interesting uh, how he approached the everything was kind of kept as, as simple as possible, um, and that was that was great to watch. I didn't I never really thought that I could kind of be a minimalist like that, but he. He was very much stripped everything down to the basics of what he needed to get the shot. Yeah, his stuff was um, always practically documentary, like it was yeah. so so real. And uh, but Bill's stuff had a kind of romantic but natural quality. He, Bill came out of documentaries; that's where he picked up a lot of his bounce lighting techniques. But what I learned from him is that anything can be a light source if you just throw a white sheet over it. Like if you, <laughs> if the light needed to come from where the couch was and the couch was off camera, just throw the bed sheet over the couch and then hit it with something. Now the couch is a light source. If the wall behind the actor's head has to be a light source, then staple a white card to it and hit it with a Leco or something. So he could pretty much get the light to come from anywhere he needed it to. Uh, if he could hit it with a with a light, that was a, a so. great and extraordinarily stealable technique. Yeah. So, what is the difference in the way that you prepare? Obviously, if you're doing big love and you're like just shooting an episode, the next episode after you finish the last episode, that doesn't give you as much time to prepare. But like, what what kind of preparation do you do? And also considering that, like, I mean, I guess the whole season of Maisel has like a giant season long arc. But the individual episodes, how much of of an arc, uh, visual arc, do you plan on, or do you think about? I always treat an episode like a little mini movie. Um, you know, there is always going to be continuity, but even going into uh, kitchen sets, sets the reoccurring sets, I'm always kind of rethinking the lighting of them. It sort of drives the crew crazy sometimes because it's like, you know, after a point, they just want to turn on the lights like they did the last time they yeah, were in yeah. that set. But I'm always well. There's that temptation to block shoot everything, right? right? Like there's a temptation to just like let's shoot all the kitchen scenes at once and shoot them from all the same angles. Yeah. But like you're telling a story, so you're trying to figure out. Yeah. Or are I? I'm putting words in your mouth. Are you? How much of that are you trying to do? I'm trying to not only uh, find the most efficient way to revisit some of these sets like well last time I tried this this next time I go in there I'm going to try something different partly to get a, a look down that I've been trying to finesse basically so some of it's just finessing a, a look of a room but the other opposite thing is just creating new looks by time of day mostly um, yeah. and mood you know that uh, it'd be nice if this kitchen felt like it took place at seven in the evening and because story-wise you know, there was a day scene and the next scene is a night scene. It'd be nice to find a transition scene. So this dinner scene could play early evening, you know. So I could play with blue light out the windows like it's twilight. I could play at sunset if it's a summertime story uh, setting where the days are longer. <clears throat> so I kept looking. Every time I break down a script, the first thing I do is mark down times a day that I think either the scene takes place at or what I could justify because it's nondescript you know mm -hmm. like i said if it if it's the last day scene before a night scene it could be a late afternoon scene um even just visually it could play late afternoon even if story-wise it's not clear what time of day the scene took place uh you have to be careful sometimes on particularly on big love i i tried to break a lot of the scenes down very carefully by time of day and then watch the final broadcast version and find that they've shuffled scenes around oh so, yeah so suddenly this office scene that was before this scene is now after that scene and i and i've made the light carefully plotted the whole scene so every scene <laughs> got looked like it got later and later and later and then had them change the order of the scene so you have to be savvy as to how scenes may be re 
uh, oriented in, in editing. It doesn't happen so much on Maisel. The, the show is shot and edited and finished very close to script form. Yeah. So I don't have to worry about a night scene becoming a day scene or something. I, when I did Smash, I had this episode which the whole script saying, we have 48 hours to put on a show. You know, it was like literally two days with one night in the middle. And then they took like a, uh, I think they took a one scene that was a night scene and put it in the middle of a day scene and basically created a third story day. You know, it went from oh, wow. day to night to day to night. So suddenly 48 years became, you know, whatever. Uh, it just, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know. I just didn't think they would even do that. But they, they just basically took a, clean, a scene that was clearly daytime, let's say, and stuck it in the middle of a night sequence. And there's nothing I could do. I couldn't time it to look like night. And they just sort of made it, created a, a basically a third story day that way. But uh-huh. I guess no one else noticed it. But um, <laughs> but sometimes that just happens. Uh, they they find they have to rearrange things for some reason or another. But doesn't that doesn't happen in Maisel. The writing is so tight that um, what you shoot pretty much goes straight out. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly crazy to me to hear you describe <laughs> that it is made like everything else because it feels like something that's like made it, you know, the Willy Wonka factory for filmmaking and brought in fully formed. It feels like such a finished thing. And, you know, I don't imagine that there's a lot of like multicolored pages because it feels like, you know, it, it yeah. all has to match up exactly or it doesn't work. Yeah, it it's that's a, the show driven. Maisel's show really driven by the writing and the fact that the writer and the director are the same person means there aren't a lot of big changes. There are some word changes. We do get new pages come in, but they're always fairly minor. It's never like oh, this whole scene is now gone or this scene has now been changed and shifted radically around. Or it very rarely happens. It's it's uh, pretty close to the original outline form. So uh, you you treat every episode like a little feature film, basically. You know, there is continuity to deal with time of year and, and story continuity, but um, when you can, you you try to think how are you going to open this as a movie and how are you going to end this episode as like a little mini movie and uh, treat it like that. Is there a difference in working for a company like Amazon making it versus the premium cable networks that you've worked for before, like HBO or Showtime? No, I think... Uh, it feels very similar to me, HBO, Showtime, Amazon. It's What's different is network. You know, I've done two or three network shows, and that feels different than doing the cable shows, partly because all the cable shows I've done, you shoot the whole series, and then it gets released when you're done. So you feel yeah. like there's no pressure while you're shooting to worry about ratings or, or dealing with yeah. the <laughs> audience response to this story or point. You just you make it the best show you can, you finish it all up and then you put it out in the world and, and let them decide. Maybe the, if it comes back a second season, they they tweak it based on the response to the first season. But you try, you just, it feels much more of a, like doing a feature film and it feels like it's an artistic decision-making process as opposed to chasing numbers around like what network shows can happen. So, uh, Ilya, you have a question that you wanted to ask. So, one of your very first projects, according to IMDb, Feature-length projects, you served as the second unit DP on something called Black Scorpion. So uh, Black Scorpion ended up becoming a very famous Roger Corman franchise. That feature that you that you worked on ended up becoming a TV series in which uh, Mike Mickens and myself and many other people all ended up working for Corman on, on that thing. Roger Corman shares a 
I'm going to say a, a particular strata of the industry that is cringeworthy. Uh, I have actually never seen the Black Scorpion feature film, but uh, I have to imagine it might be slightly campy and very much in the style of Roger Corman. We're bringing this up now, and you've done so many things since then, so many things that uh, are are amazing. Tell me about 1995 David Mullen uh, showing up for Roger Corman to to do that job. Well, this is very early in my career, and I was looking for work, essentially, and uh, I don't even know how I got the call. They just needed someone to do some second unit shots on on this uh, Black Scorpion film. But one of the first weird things, it's a very surreal place to begin with. First thing is I get there, and the DP for that film wasn't available for pre-production. So we had the production meeting, and I, I had to sit in for him, because he wasn't there. So I was like, well, that's strange. The DP is not even here for the production meeting. So I'm sitting there and, you know, I like I said, I have an English lit ma- uh, bachelor's degree. And I'm reading the script on the, in the production meeting and the script says, um, we have an insert of a newspaper headline that says, criminals caught in black scorpion's web. And I was, <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, uh, hello. Uh, scorpions don't weave webs. Well, the script used to be called Black Widow. We had to change it. But the script's full of all the spider symbolism, spider imagery, spider... Yeah, we can't Arachnids, change. it's close yeah, enough. Yeah, close enough. That's total Roger Corman. It's like, oh, we, we, can't, we can't use a spider. Oh, make it a scorpion. All right, so... I don't Black, share your disdain for Roger Corman. Go Black on. Widow became Black Scorpion. And they had so much to shoot. I, I just sort of... I wasn't much involved in the planning because I was only supposed to do a few little second unity shots. But everything, I, they made everything harder for me. Like, they wanted me to go out and do night exterior, available light shots of buildings and cars. And I said, okay, I need fast film, fast lens. I need to undercrank the camera. And first, they gave me a camera that could only run at 24 frames a second. They gave me lenses that were scratched and couldn't, weren't fast. So I had to push the film stock. I said, everything I need to do to do it, you just don't have the budget to get me a, the Cla- right equipment for. <laughs> Typical Corbin, classic. <laughs> you know, the one day on stage, there was no parking out there in Venice where their stages were, and I, I had to spend a day on stage doing inserts. I parked my car in the street, I come and they only paid me for like $100 for that day's work. I come out and someone has broken my window, tried to steal my radio, and it cost me $100 to fix the windshield. Uh, so the $100 I made that one day it just went into fixing my car. The mid-90s in, in Venice were uh, kind of a sketchy time, and I yeah. know that that's why Corman had that real estate is because it was pretty inexpensive. And yeah. uh, uh, I know several people who had their vehicles broken into while, while working for uh for that company. So yes, uh, Roger Corman is, I don't know, uh, we kind of bemoaned the loss of Roger Corman some time ago, but there's an awful lot of things about people coming up that that weren't so great. What, what so, loss of Roger Corman? Oh, well, uh, Roger Corman doesn't have the studios in Venice oh. anymore. He's not doing the, the sort of- Because I think he still makes movies. He, yes, he might still, still make movies. I think it's in Ireland though. I think oh. it's like, yeah, it's yeah. on the other side of the world. I, I mean, thought you were going to tell me that Roger Corman had passed away and I was going to yeah. start crying right now. No, I, I, was, I was not going to say that. I was just saying that there's not the the- Concord Studios, New well, Horizon yeah. Studios. Yeah. Well, it certainly was a training ground. And the fact that Los Angeles had or has a healthy non-union uh, industry, as much as the union complains about it to some degree, it does provide a training ground for people. You know, you, a lot of people just can't start out in the union. You have to come from somewhere. So I think I don't think the union is against non-union production below a certain budget level, but it's uh, 
it was you know a necessary moment in my life to to kind of find my way up uh and and doing that one or two days on the Corman film was an interesting learning experience although it, partly as I learned that my own instincts were right you know I I figured these guys make films all the time they must know more than I do but they I'm sitting in this production meeting and they have this huge night exterior plan in the street in downtown LA with a huge night exterior plan on the rooftop of the building that same night on the same street and I'm like how are you going to light the rooftop and the street below at the same time? Aren't you going to be in each other's way? And and it turned out I was exactly right. They they basically couldn't do all the work in one night because they had to move all the lighting off the roof to move it down to the street or vice versa. Mm. And I got down to the street and I my job was just to rig a uh, one of the criminal's cars with a camera on it so they could do a chase scene. And and so I mounted the camera to the side of the car and the actors jumped in, they drove off. I said, try to drive down a street with some lights on it because there's no, <laughs> there's no lighting, right? So, and the car pulls back in and then suddenly the director pulls the criminals out of that car. It's a Camaro, an orange Camaro. And he puts the police into the same orange Camaro and says, now we're going to do the police car uh, driving shots. But I, I said, it's still an orange Camaro. He goes, yeah, but no one's going to tell an interior at night with unlit streets. So the police are chasing the criminals down in the same car, basically, because they didn't want to spend the time to move the camera mount off the Camaro onto the police car. So I think it's time for us to do an episode of the podcast where it's just commentary on Black Scorpion. Yes. <laughs> See see if we can get a Black Scorpion reunion going. Yeah, well, we've got we've got three people who've worked on either the the feature or the TV series for real. Yeah. All right, so um, I think that that about wraps us up. Where can people find your work online if they want to see it? I mean, do you have a website or Instagram or? Well, my own photography is on on my Instagram uh, page. It's just MD Mullen One, mm-hmm. and uh, so you can see my still photography work. But otherwise. Uh, you know, my work is online with uh, HBO, Westworld, you know, and uh, Maisel. Probably the two easiest things to find right now. <laughs> Definitely. Well, cool. Thank you so much for coming out here. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Uh, that was David Mullen. Thank you again, David, for coming on the show. Hopefully we can bring you back one of these days. What a great interview. I'm so I'm so glad. He was He was really amazing, and I learned a lot and, you know, gave me a lot to think about. It was a lot of fun. So, so Ben... Is it bill paying time? It do is. I, it is bill paying time right now. Do I do I hear music? I hear. I, I hear I, some music. I hear music, and it's it's not by our composer Kay Zalatracci. It is in fact from Music Bed. Whoa, Music Bed. Tell me about Music Bed. Well, I think I uh, mentioned it on the last uh, show. You didn't. No. Okay, maybe you did. Yeah, go ahead and mention it again. <laughs> I did mention is that I'm currently working for a client, and they we needed some music, and there was another music service that this person had worked with before uh, I came on board to uh, edit this project for uh, a lesser service. I, I'm not going to cast aspersions on any lesser. <laughs> But uh, I had recommended uh, some music bed, but I've been doing a lot of poking around on music bed. And when, when you hear things like, you know, techno or dubstep or whatever, you know, maybe they bring certain things to mind. But it's interesting when you combine when you when you take something that's a little bit more contemporary or maybe something that's not exactly in the genre that you would expect and put it into a video that you're making, specifically stuff that you're making for clients. And I'm assuming a lot of our listeners, you know, work in video production where they're making, you know, industrial videos or they're making videos for the web or educational stuff. And you can really go a little bit outside the box. And the cool thing about Musicbed is you can explore all of these options that are outside of the box 
countless genres, countless tones. You can search by tone. You can search by mood. You can search by genre. You can ser- you can not want vocals, or you can want vocals, or however you want to go go about doing it. Ooh, ooh. Can you? also then have other versions so let's say you've got a vocal version and a non-vocal version and you can find ways to edit and mix those things together of course you could yeah if you have if you have both versions you can uh you and by the way a lot of the music on there i mean they know you're going to be editing the music so when you're editing to be able to to see on your waveform clearly where the beats are landing saves you so much time in editing and i know that like a lot of the music you're going to find out there is going to be like that but I, I, the stuff that I found on Musicbed, it, it actually kind of is, I don't know if they're choosing it for this, but it, the stuff I've used lends itself to being cut and, uh, and, and kind of adapted to whatever length I need something to run at. Uh, Musicbed is super powerful and they have a wonderful coupon code, promo code for our listeners, which is CinemaPod. CinemaPod. If you uh, go to Musicbed right now, you can type in CinemaPod, you can make an account, you know, confirm your email address, and then enter CinemaPod at checkout, and you can get a month free of their service, which, let me tell you, you can do a lot of stuff in a month. Oh, yes, you can do a lot, and that means non-watermarked music that you can use Use, in your projects. That's right, professionally, for YouTube, or for whatever your... Yeah, they have, they, they lay out their different licenses on there very, very clearly, and the language is, uh, again, I was able to show that to the client. They were able to show it to their lawyers and like almost immediately we got approved to use their music. And if for some reason you don't want to do the month, you can also use it for a particular track and it's totally worth it. But uh, do the month. The month is smart. The month you get the most value for sure. Absolutely. Uh, Okay, so cinemapod at musicbed.com. Okay, Ben, we have one other sponsor we really need to thank this week. And that is Aperture. Aperture, that's right. Aperture, uh, makers of fine LED lights, wonderful lights to be used by professionals as well as uh, creators uh, of all different levels. Uh, they have a product called the LS-Mini 20. Just rolls off the tongue. The LS-Mini 20. The reason I'm talking about the Mini 20 The LS-Mini 20, or as they would say in England, the LS-Mini 20. That's exactly right. Uh, I'm actually going to talk, there's two versions of this. There's one which is a D and one which is a C. So LS-Mini 20C. The C has an adjustable color temperature, which means that you can have a warmer white or a cooler white. And uh, the thing is like, I don't know, it's uh, smaller than a, a baguette. Is that, is that distinct from being bicolor? It's it's bicolor. That's what okay. it is. But it's got all these settings in between. Some bicolor lights, it's like you've got one choice, 3200. The other is, up. Oh, you got the other is 5600. This gives you a range. You can, you can adjust in between. It's a cool little light with barn doors and a little focusable Fresnel. Fresnel, very fancy French word for a lens, a very particular type of lens, lenses you might see like in lighthouses and the like. Well, they put them inside this light here called... Or the, as my TV production uh, teacher in high school called it, a Fresnel. Fresnel, yes. You always know the very uh, competent and experienced person calling those lenses Fresnels. So, yes, yeah, that's, all of us or, theater dorks laughed in her face. Yeah, that's, you know, that's... I, I, I hear it more often than you would think. Mm. So uh, anyway, the, the LS Mini 20 is battery powerable. It can run off of little DV batteries. It's got a cool kit which comes with clamps and mounts and barn doors and all the other things you need to shape light. Totally worth looking at, especially since it's under 300 bucks. It's about $280. What? I know. It's really inexpensive for a little professional. Shut up and take light. my money. 
<laughs> well, I I uh, I will. Okay, thank all you, Ben. Right. You're I'll, as soon as we're done here, I'll I'll take all your money. I got I got one downstairs. <laughs> I think you'll like. Dude, it. this podcast has actually been good for you selling me stuff yeah, recently. You know, it's really good. You actually have uh, decided to plunk down your your credit card now a couple times. So. Yes. So, but you know, as you should, we are the the best camera shop ever. That is true. And now, short ends. Now that we're done paying the bills, what is your short end this week? My obsession of the week is Alamo Drafthouse Cinema. That's a that's a worthy obsession. I didn't know why why specifically this week you're well, obsessed with. Okay, with Alamo so one opened in L.A. a few months ago. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar with Alamo Drafthouse, uh, they started in uh, Austin, Texas, I believe. My first encounter with Alamo Drafthouse was going to Fantastic Fest with the movie, uh, my movie Alien Raiders in 2008, in September of 2008. And I've probably mentioned this to you before, but you have. <laughs> in Orlando, I worked at a movie theater called the Enzian Theater, which was a, a movie theater where you could get full service food and it is still there. And if you find yourself in Orlando, by golly, go there. It's it's great. It's an art house that the cinema, the food's excellent, the service is great. However, when I went to Alamo Draft House in uh, Texas, I was blown away at the way they had they had arranged the the table service, which was they kind of had a stadium seating situation with an aisle between the aisles, basically between the rows, where a waiter could basically walk. They could walk right in front of you, but they were just a head below you, so you didn't see them. They would be a menu, golf pencils, you'd write your order, you'd stick it in a little thing, they'd come by, they'd take it, they'd drop your food, they'd drop a check, you'd give them a card, blah, blah, blah. All while watching a movie. And you, it would not disturb your movie watching experience. Now, the Enzian Theater has gotten better about this, but back in the day, a waiter would literally come to each table and like tell you how much money you owed them and then you'd pay them and whatever, <laughs> yes. like while the movie was happening. And they, it was, they didn't have that part down. It was much, always yeah. in the third act of the movie and it was, uh, uh, let's just say less than ideal. Now they have conquered that at the Enzian theater. Oh good. Uh, so it's not like that now. Uh, and it's all credit card based and seamless and your movie going is not disturbed partly because of technology. So the Alamo draft house is opening up. They're opening up uh, branches all over the country. They opened up one in downtown LA. Um, Fantastic. My wife, Alicia and I went last week and saw parasite, which is an amazing film, which I will not proceed to spoil, (laughs) but Alamo draft house does things a little differently than a lot of other uh, movie theaters. Uh, For instance, they have a very stern warning about how stern. uh, Basically, they're going to kick you out of the theater if Uh. you pull your phone out of your pocket during the movie. I remember hearing that some famous person did that during uh, South by. It was Uh, Madonna. Was it Madonna? It was Madonna. She got kicked out. She got kicked out. And no apologies, no refunds. Boom, you're gone. And when I went to Fantastic Fest in 2008, I met the owner of Alamo Drafthouse because he basically is there introducing every movie at Fantastic Fest. I don't know how he's at all places at all times, but he manages it. His name is Tim League. Mm. And everything about Alamo Drafthouse just exudes Tim League's attitude right down to they have a karaoke bar in in the lobby. But, uh, you know, their love of genre films is legendary. It's just in certain ways, the film going experience kind of, I won't say reimagined because you're still in a theater. The theaters are a little smaller. The seats are very comfortable. The tables are well engineered. And, you know, uh, Alicia and I got some food and stuff and it was friggin seamless. Is it hard eating in the dark, not being able to see your food? They figured that out. 
what? Yeah, there's like very dim lights below the table that you're kind of sitting at. Uh, it's not really a table. It's like one of those desks that you'd get in that would in, in college that would pop up out of a movie theater style seat. Sure. So it's like a nicer version of that. And there's a very dim, dim light right it's below it. Like an ambery red light. It's that- very, very dim. Um, but it's so you the, can sort of see where to stick your fork. Correct. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and the food is excellent. And that that was always the case at the Austin uh, uh, branch that I that I'd gone to. Oh yeah. You know, I, I guess it's kind of a twofer because I can't recommend Fantastic Fest enough. It's an amazing. It's probably my favorite film festival I've ever attended. But specifically, uh, if there's an Alamo Draft House in your city, go to it. If you're visiting a city with an Alamo Draft House check it out not not sponsoring us but you can also find them in our show notes we'll put a link in there it's drafthouse.com and then of course if you're in los angeles forward slash loss yeah dash angeles (laughs) and it is in the heart of downtown so it's not a bad idea to uber there or uh, it's actually directly across from a train station oh although although they, they do have a parking structure there and it was i think only like four bucks to validate so Ben, my short end this week is not exactly, uh, it's not a venue like yours, but it is a movie. Uh, I was very fortunate to see an advanced screening of 1917 and, uh, shot by Roger Deakins, who we would love to have on the show someday. And it's incredible. It's re- it's really incredible. It's a Sam Mendes movie. Oh, Sam Mendes is awesome. Yeah. And, and Sam doesn't make enough movies. Oh my God. Not at all. And he and Roger have worked together a, a number of times in the past. And uh, there was a wonderful, wonderful Q&A that that also happened where I I got to learn a little bit more about the whole process. But I have not been able to stop thinking about this movie since I saw it last night. And the movie is set up not exactly to be an actual one take movie, but to for those who are really paying attention to feel like the movie is taking place all in uh, one take or one continuous shot, two hours of screen time and it's so successfully done. This is not a Russian arc. This is not some of these other movies, which it's like the choreography of the camera and the actors and everything does not really work. And they play it out to um, big stretches of time where you're going, oh, God, wh- how long is it going to take for us to get to something that's interesting or do I want to pay attention to? No, the story is masterfully crafted. The camera work, it's about as perfect as I think I've ever seen any movie, which is trying to take on something like this. Mm. And let me tell you, within a few minutes, you forget that you're watching a single take sort of movie and uh, you just become so enveloped in the story, which was by design that the story is so enthralling that you uh, are not paying attention to this. But when there are key moments in any direction that's important, you will not feel like you're missing out. You feel like you're seeing exactly what you should be seeing. And even though it mostly takes place during the day, it's not just about the blocking. It's not just about the camera movement. It's not just about uh, which way it happens to be pointing. It is not in any way feel improvised, although I'm sure there was some improvisation because they have very, very long sequences, which there are no cuts there. And um, it sounds like there's quite a few happy accidents, which actually makes the movie even stronger and more mm. spontaneous than than it would have expected. So, so 1917, coming very soon to a theater near you. So it's a movie that that is apparently all one take, but it's done like Hitchcock's Rope or that movie from 10 years ago, The Silent House, where it's just done with clever burying of the cuts, right? Yes. And it's done in such a way that the choreography of camera and talent uh, all interact together and that you never feel like you're missing out on something that you're not seeing and that you're following the action uh, exactly as you should be. So, I mean, I'm going to see the movie, so 
Maybe I shouldn't ask this, but (laughs) well, yeah, of course. Sam Mendes and, uh, you know, Roger Deakins, like, how could I not? Um, But how do you do a movie that's all kind of made to look like one continuous take without it feeling gimmicky at all? Doesn't feel like a gimmick. They have they have pulled it. They have pulled it off successfully, uh, completely. Not at any point do it like, oh, there's the cut. Oh, well, I have to sneak that cut in there. Oh, we've gone long enough time. Yeah, no, it feels spontaneous and successful uh, throughout the entire thing. Not once did I ever feel like, oh, they're just, they have to hold on to this for a bit longer or, oh, now this camera has to swing over here and pick up because there's something happening off screen. No, they've, they've cracked well, the code. I'm sure that there are happy accidents uh, galore in a movie like that, but I sort of feel like having done things in oneers, you know, like you always feel really good when you successfully pull off a oneer, but even though it seems like it shouldn't take as much time, it ends up taking you twice as much time to do a oneer as it would Ooh, take to do two shots. Maybe three times. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> so. anything goes wrong in the middle, you have to start over. I feel like the way that they got, and I don't know this to be 100% true, and if maybe if we can get Roger and or Sam to come on the show, we can we can ask them. But I feel like it's very it's very well planned. It's very well. Oh conceived. no! I mean, to me, that's the thing and is it all has to be crazy well planned. I mean, like when you look at uh, you know uh, Alfonso Cuarón's uh, Children of Men, sure, or uh, Inuritu's uh, The Revenant, where they where there are these really really long stretches without cuts, or that really fantastic episode of Mr. Robot. Did I, you, I did not see that. Oh, you didn't see that one? Okay. Mr. Robot. If it was a, after season one, I kind of okay, lost never, the thread. Well, they, they had one, uh, not in the current season, but in the season prior, which had a the whole episode was done that way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, there was a uh, an episode of uh, The Haunting of Hill House where I think they did something not exactly like that, but it was like super crazy long takes. Hmm. You know, to me, it's, it's like you kind of have to really have your act. To, it's like doing live theater. You have to get all the way through five minutes. And, you know, like, let's say it's five minutes. Let's say it's a 15 minute uh, with no cut. If you have to start reset and do it again, it's not just another 15 minutes to do it. It's probably hours of reset. You know, I was going to say, uh, you mentioned Dharma 985 and how they were taking the Crayolas out of their box. They were taking away some of the tools that they use. Same thing with this. One of the things that Sam Mendes is, is limiting himself here is his ability to cut to whatever, or just to throw something in this, this tool is being removed from the post-production process. But yeah. I understand that the, uh, the editor was like, was right there and was chopping the whole thing together as it went. And uh, they were able to actually kind of like review the movie as they went along. And uh, Sam Mendes said he had to make a lot of uh, pacing decisions and that basically when they do multiple takes, it became like, well, what pace uh, feels appropriate for the shot that was just preceding it, and how how do yeah. you go about? It's not it's not a choice for the faint of heart because you're kind of baking in a lot of choices that you can't you can't fix later, or you you just have limited ability to fix later. You know what? Uh, what this movie proves though that if you make the right choices and if you do well in your one or choreography. Uh, you won't feel like you're missing anything. You don't feel like there's anything oh, that's, yeah, that, no, that's of ever missing. It's, I mean, uh, you know, Children of Men for the longest time has been like, you know, probably in the top 10, in my top 10 favorite movies. And that movie notoriously has 15 minute long takes. And a lot of movies will do that with something. They might do it with the the intro to the movie, like a famous touch of evil or something yeah. like that. Uh, or the player where they talk about all these other intros that, that do that. Strange Days, Catherine Bigelow. Yeah. But it's very different, I think, to try to make the entire movie that way. And uh, I've never seen it done more successfully than this. And for that reason, I will say right now that uh, probably film schools will be looking at and studying this movie till the end of time. 
Well, that's awesome. They should also see the silent house. Anyway, uh, so who do we need to thank, Ilya? Uh, of course, we're going to thank uh, our producer, Alana Cody. Thank you Yay. very much. Uh, we're going to thank Kay Zalatrachi. He's not listening. He's definitely not listening to this <laughs> right now. Who, he, he provided all the music that wasn't the music bed commercial music. That's correct. Uh, we're going to thank Ben Katz, who, of course, made this all uh, flow together and made this sound better he, than we he actually... He didn't just listen to it. He, uh, he actually did. Oh, yeah, poor guy. He listened to the whole thing. I've edited a bunch of these, and let me just tell you, yeah, no, no, no picnic. Yeah, we're not we're not fun here. But, but Ben, thank you. You're, thank you, you're, Ben. You're, you're making it happen. And uh, someone else? Someone else? No, there? I think that that's it, Ilya. Where Ooh. can people find you online? Uh, they can find me at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com, and all the Instas and Facebooks and things that are related to Hot Rod Cameras. And you can find me at benrockonline.com. Maybe one day I will live the dream of getting benrock.com, but for now it's benrockonline.com. Well, you know, no confusion that way. Yeah, I didn't confuse. <laughs> I confused all three people who are still listening. So anyway, uh, until our next episode. Ooh, it'll be a great episode, too. Will it? It will. Who's it going to be? I'm not going to say. Oh, fuck. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll until see then. <laughs> this has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.